This is Jocko Podcast number 199 with Echo Charles and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Echo. Good evening. I have not been on this earth long, but I've been through more than most would in a lifetime. I served six years in the United States Marine Corps as a helicopter door gunner and airframes mechanic. On my last deployment to Afghanistan, I was involved in a helicopter crash. June 23rd, 2012 was the defining moment in my life. I suffered a traumatic brain injury, severe facial trauma, a left leg above the knee amputation, damage to my cervical spine, and damage to my upper arms. I remember screaming with tears rolling down my face when they said they were taking my leg above the knee. I thought it was all over. That all of my dreams were turned into nightmares. I have it on repeat in my head. A scream encompassing terror, pain, and fear of what my life might become. And those are the words and thoughts of a wounded warrior, a Marine Corps sergeant, a third generation Marine whose mother and father were both Marines. But in this case, this particular Marine was able to take that fear, that fear of a new life, of a different life, of what life might become with those devastating injuries suffered and turn that new life into one of overcoming struggle, a life of facing new challenges and a life of leading the way and showing the path for anyone that faces challenges and struggles in any walk of life. As this Marine proves, you are never out of the fight. And it is an honor to have this Marine with us on the podcast tonight, a Marine by the name of Kirsty Ennis. Kirsty, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I dug a little deep on your blogs and Facebook to assemble some things because I like to read what people write and because I think that's the best pathway to figure out what they're thinking at that time. And yeah, you got some pretty, pretty incredible statements on there. And I was able to go through them and assemble them. Like I said, let's let's start off talking about where you came from because I think that's always a good place to start. And and one thing that you you in in your writings, I found this, which I thought was just I just had to, I just had to bring this up. Yeah, I'm that guy. You know, and they say some someday someone's going to go through all your social media stuff, and re- that's me. So here we go. This <laughs> right. is what you said about your childhood. I was a jerk as a child. 
My mom and dad would just love to tell you stories about me dismantling my window alarm to sneak out, disconnecting phone lines so my principal wouldn't call home, or maybe even bringing stink bombs into school. So there's, we're getting an indication, kind of a view into what you were like as a kid. Where was it? Where, where did all this take place? Oh, man. Well, so with both my parents being in the Marine Corps, we, we bounced all over the place. Um, but after my mom and my dad got out, we went back to the, the panhandle of Florida. And I spent most of my middle school and high school years there. And I was just an absolute terrorist. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I gave my parents a run for their money. I mean, I look back now and I actually feel really, really bad about it. I'm terrified to have kids of my own because I know payback is going to be a bitch. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I was just always way too smart for my own good. Like mm-hmm. school was a joke. Athletics were never really hard. I didn't, I wasn't challenged. Um, so yeah, I was just always up to, to no good. Nothing like malicious, uh, but yeah, always a little mischievous. The most malicious thing was stink bombs in school? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, maybe a little bit more malicious, but yeah. we're, we don't know what the statute of limitations is, so we're not going to go there? Yes, exactly. <laughs> what, um, you, you mentioned athletics a little bit. What sports did you play? So growing up, I did a bunch of team sports. I mean, everything from softball to volleyball and, and everything in between. Um, actually, like a lot of the individual extreme sports that I'm doing now, never even did them as a kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything was obviously very Southern and, and team-related. So were you good at were you a good athlete? I like to think so, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I, But I, again, I never really was challenged. It was just I was okay with, you know, being good but not really having to try that hard at it. Uh, so... And that was your high school career? I mean, you, you played sports. At what point did you go from the, the stink Unabomber <laughs> into saying you're going to join the Marine Corps? Yeah, well, so I actually was done with my high school curriculum by the time I was 15. Um, so I started doing college classes at, at the time, Pensacola Junior College. And, um, yeah, I got my two-year degree, and again— Were you just hyper-motivated to get done with high school, or— yeah, and, and just bored. I was really bored, and I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with Pensacola. There's, yeah. especially the surrounding towns, there's just not a lot there. Uh, so, yeah, just wanted to be done with it and, and get the heck out and, and never look back. And then you enlisted. How old were you when you enlisted? 17. Did your parents, so your parents had to sign the paperwork. (laughs) How did your parents, two Marines, feel about you going in the Marine Corps? So, my. Mom was like good riddance, signed immediately, wanted nothing more to do with me. I was out. Uh, my dad was pretty pissed, though. Um, he really wanted me to finish that last two years of college before I went off to the Marine Corps. Um, and so he came home. He was he was working on the pipeline at the time. Came home like a bat out of hell and was like, you know, argued with me the whole nine. And I just lied through my teeth and told him that I would do a desk job to get him to sign. I was like, look, dude, you can sign the papers now or you can wait eight months. I'm going to sign them anyways myself. So... He finally buckled. Um, he trusted me, which that was a bad idea when I was 17. <laughs> yeah. It's so strange when you look back. And I got I got a son right now that's 16, and I'm thinking, wow. Like, it, you grow up so much between the ages of 16, 17, and, like, even 20, 22, and then 22, 25. Like, y- you don't know a lot when you're 17 years old. Nope. That's the bottom line. Sure don't. But you... I mean, I will say this, both your parents being Marines, one thing that's kind of cool is they at least knew what was going to happen. I mean, if you if your parents didn't have any experience, they probably would have completely freaked out. But you at least know what the Marine Corps is. You know that it's you know that it does what it does and it does it well. You know, the Marine Corps puts kids from every background, every walk of life onto the path of being a Marine, which is a squared away thing to be 
in my opinion. Absolutely. How much of a shocker was it when you, how much longer was it until you went to boot camp? Um, I went a few short months after that. Um, originally, I was going to try and hold out and, and actually wait a little bit before my 18th birthday. Um, but again, I got that little two-year degree um, from Pensacola Junior College and had a little bit of free time, started getting in trouble again. So it was just time to leave. <laughs> so I left. What was the, how was, how much of a shock was it for you checking into boot camp? You know, it's, it's funny. Um, I'll tell a quick story about my family or my parents because it's my hands down favorite story. But mom and dad got married at 18, living on Navarre Beach in Florida. Dad joins the Marine Corps right afterwards. Um, eight years later, I'm already born. We're living on 29 Palms um, in, in California. And my mom comes home and tells my dad, you know, I think these female Marines are pretty badass. Dad looks at mom, says, I'll never be married to a female Marine. <laughs> mom looks at him, turns around, leaves, gets an age waiver, and joins the Marine Corps. <laughs> so, like, my earliest memory is actually, you know, my mom walking across the parade deck. Like, So how old was your mom when she enlisted in the Marine Corps? Uh, she would have been 26, 27. Yeah, that's the Marine Corps doesn't take people that are that old. That's right. like an ancient dinosaur in the Marine Corps yep, to, go, to be going <laughs> yeah. to boot camp. Yeah, and boot camp they all called her mom. How long How long did your dad end up doing in the Marine Corps? Um, he was in for nine years. And then what about your mom? Uh, she just did four. Okay. <laughs> part of it was a spite thing, I think, and then part of it, uh, you know, she wanted to do it, and I think she would live in regret if she didn't do it, uh-huh. um, especially if her husband told her no. <laughs> so <laughs> That's the last time he denied her anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He knew where that was going. Yeah. So... So you check into the boot in a boot camp. Was it uh, was it a shock to your system? Did you you know be, with your mom and dad both being in the Marine Corps, had they kind of given you a heads up? Did you understand what you were getting into? And how much did it still shock you? Yeah, well, I so I kid you not, like I idolized my parents. You know, I, I just loved the fact that they got up every morning, put the uniform on, and did something bigger than themselves. So I mean, my favorite movie. I I mean, I got off the bus and watched documentaries on Marine Corps boot camp. You know, my Barbies were dressed in dress blues. My, my favorite t-shirt was my mom's U.S. Marine kind of thing. So I was very well educated and versed on what boot camp would consist of. And of course, I heard all the stories from everybody. Um, but I loved boot camp. Um, I made it way harder on myself than I needed to because I was, again, 17 years old and just a little shit. You know, they'd say yell and I'd whisper just being ugh, just being a pain. Um, but as far as like the physical aspect of it, you know, I just reminded myself like, I'm getting to play for 13 weeks. Like, where else do you get paid to run and throw grenades and, uh, and you know, do the obstacle course? The um, Was there anything that you had trouble with in, in Marine Corps boot camp? I, well, I honestly, I just had a, I had an issue, just like I said, breaking down my attitude. <laughs> my attitude was, you know, I, I wanted to say why to everything. And so that was honestly the hard part. Again, it was just, yeah, keeping my head in the right place. Um, and then how did you end up becoming like what was the process for you picking your MOS <laughs> um, well I wanted again wanted something just to challenge myself you know I didn't want to do supplier admin and I wanted to deploy um, when I actually walked out of my class that I was in when I was 17 I very vividly remember looking around this chemistry lab and being like he won't do it she can't do it there's no way in hell he'll you know he'll deploy or any of that and obviously very terrible and judgmental of me, but I mean, that was the catalyst. I mean, that inspired me to walk out of that chem lab and go to the recruiter's office. What year was this? 2008. Oh, so you full on knew that you were going 
to yeah. go to on deployment to Iraq and Afghanistan if you got a some kind of a job that would put you in the field in some way. Exactly. Yeah. And I wanted that. I mean, I growing up, I would like for for a long time, some of my family was like, oh, God, she's going to be a social worker because I just always loved like. I was the bully that beat up the bully. You know, I love protecting the kids that, you know, couldn't or wouldn't protect themselves. So, yeah, when I went to the recruiter's office, I was like, you just got to give me something where I, I feel like I'm living that higher purpose or I know exactly without a doubt, you know, what my role in the grand scheme is. Um, so, yeah, when I went into the recruiter's office, I was like, throw me whatever you got. Uh, and then, of course, with the ASVAB, I had the scores to do whatever, and I knew nothing about aviation, um, but that's, that's what I went for. To become a to become an airframe mechanic. That was the first step. So, yep. And where is it, isn't that school in Pensacola? It is. <laughs> and <laughs> so you can imagine how much trouble I got in again. <laughs> <laughs> the where were you? Do you remember September 11th? Uh, yeah, I was in fifth grade, uh, Mrs. Todd's class at WH Rhodes in Milton, Florida. How much understanding did you have of what was happening? Were uh, your parents still in the Marine Corps at the time? Uh, no. But my dad was actually working on the outskirts of New York City. Um, and so I remember my mom picking me up, um, and honestly, she was just petrified. Um, she thought she was going to get, you know, stop loss. She thought she was going to get called back, and she didn't know what to do. My dad's working in New York, and, you know, we're down in Florida. And I just remember laying on the, on the carpet in front of a TV that wasn't even on a stand um, under this big blue jean blanket um, and just sitting there and crying and waiting to hear from my dad and figure out what was going on. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously very emotional, but, and then as you, I mean, going back a little bit, but when you join the Marine Corps, your parents absolutely know that in the Marine Corps after September 11th, if you were in the Marine Corps, there was a really good chance you were going to Iraq or Afghanistan. Yep. And you when, what year was it you enlisted? 2008? Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. So you go to airframe school. How long does that school last? Uh, it's only a few months, really, but it was hard to like get classed up into it. Um, but I was in the A school for like f- four, like four months down there, and then C school over in New River for a couple of months. New River, what? Where's that? Um, it's up right outside of Lejeune. Okay. Um, but yeah. And this is, you know, just for people that don't, for people that don't know too much about the military. I mean, the the military is a massive organization that basically encompasses all of all everything that happens in the world. So yes, you see Marines flying helicopters, but there's a Marine that knows how to work on that helicopter. There's a Marine that knows how to fix that helicopter. There's a Marine that knows how to fuel that helicopter. There's Marines that know how to work on the electronics in there. The, and then there's people that know how to land it. There's, there's people that do everything. And then there's people that supply the people that are doing all those things with the gear that they need. And there's Marines that are in charge of educating. So there's this whole world inside of the military inside the Marine Corps. So, and you have to have it all in order in order to go forward and fight wars. There has to be all these different logistical support elements and equipment elements. I mean, it just it's just this massive machine and the Army has the same thing and the Navy obviously has the same thing with ships and planes and everything else. So, but what's cool is when you join the service, as they used to say when I was a kid, do they still say that? <laughs> <laughs> Old Jockley joined the service. <laughs> I always felt like I was in World War II and somebody asked me, hey, how's, how's it being, how's your run in the service going? So when you join the service, when you join the service, they give you some kind of a job and some kind of an education. So that's what you were doing, learning how to work on 
on the uh, on the 53, right? Mm-hmm. That's what you're. Is yeah. it specific to the 53? Oh yeah. So you're learning specifically how to work on a specific aircraft that is used by the Marine Corps called the what is it? The MH 53. What's the what's the Marine Corps version called? CH the CH 53. Big, awesome bird, powerful, massive bird uh, helicopter that can hold. Forty Marines. Yep. I'm gonna say. Mm-hmm. I had to memorize all that stuff at some point. <laughs> so my, my memory's getting shady. Speaking of senior citizen over here. Mm-hmm. So then, where do you get stationed when you get done with these schools? Uh, my first duty station was Miramar, actually. Oh, okay. San Diego. Can't SD. really complain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit better than Twenty Nine Palms. A little bit better. <laughs> yes. So, and then, what's your day to day life when you're? Are, are you attached to a squadron? Is, is that what's going on? Yeah, so my first unit uh, was Heavy Marine Helicopter Squadron 465. Um, and to be totally honest, my the airframe shop didn't really want me there right off the bat. You know, at, you know, throwing a female into a shop of all dudes, you're, you're adding a pretty interesting dynamic. So it was really a matter of, you know, I had to prove myself, how to wear a chip on my shoulder and keep my head down. Mm-hmm. Again, got into my fair share of trouble as an 18-year-old in San Diego. Um, but uh, I worked my way out of that, just to be clear. <laughs> when I first got in the Navy and got to San Diego, there was a rule. The drinking age was 21 in California, but the drinking age on base was 18. So, like, yeah, you could. there was kids that did, had never drank before just – wrecking themselves <laughs> it was such a disaster at some point luckily they changed it so you're you're in there you're the first female you said that that was with this group yeah in a very very long time if ever but mm-hmm. and then i mean that's when you're a new guy checking in anyways it's going to be you're going to get you're going to get i guess hazed is the politically incorrect <laughs> word right yeah, yeah. we're not because you're not allowed to haze but you're going to get is razzed okay? Is that the razzed, same thing? Good. You're going to get razzed. You're going to get hassled a little bit when you're checking in somewhere. When you check in, are you guys already looking? Are you already seeing a deployment ahead of you? So when you check in, are they like, hey, we're going on deployment at this time? Right when I got there, I actually considered myself to have been getting lucky because they were just leaving for a Mew. So I lucked out and missed the Mew um, and got to stick around, stick back, and actually learn my job uh, and become become proficient in that. And then when the next cycle came around, half of us went on a Mew and then half of us went to Afghanistan. And I was lucky enough to go to Afghanistan. And then what was that deployment? When you were heading on that deployment, were you, what was your, what were your nerves like? Were you just like a typical 18 year old Marine that's just fired up to go and get after it? Oh, I was just, yeah, I was so super excited. Honestly, I, um, yeah, I mean, I was just ready to go. I mean, I think my bags were packed weeks in advance, but, <laughs> and I don't even think the nerves kicked in about any of it up until that, you know, like you're starting to land <laughs> and you're doing your laps. That's when I got nervous. This is the f- where, where did you, how did you guys get there? How did you guys deploy there? Uh, so we came in on a C-130. Okay. And the bird, the, your helicopters were already there. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so you were replacing, basically replacing the cr- uh, group. Yep. Exactly. And so you show up on the ground. And what was the day-to-day, what was your what was your mission there? What were you doing? Uh, so day-to-day the, life. My first and second deployments were very different. Uh, the first one was, you know, super, like, maintenance, maintenance involved. I mean, it was everything. I was usually night shift. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was everything from doing the hydraulics to riveting, welding, composite repair, composite repair, you know, battle damage assessments, stuff like that. Um, you know, they trusted me enough to go out and do those jobs by myself, but not really enough to – 
to go outside of the wire or do anything like that. Um, what was the op tempo like? How often were the birds flying? Were they flying like oh, every man. single day, all day? Every single day. Um, I mean, we, oftentimes we'd send out seven or eight flights. Um, and again, you know, you know, birds don't fly out there single ship. So mm-hmm. I mean, you'd have 14 aircraft down and having to like do turnarounds and daily inspections to get them out the next day or even five, six hours later. And the Marine Corps usually deploys for six months. Was it a typical kind of six month deployment? Yep, seven. Yeah. Seven month deployment because there's a little bit on the beginning, a little bit on the end. Yeah. Were you? What was? Were you getting sleep? Yeah. I mean, I. I mean, I had. I had. It was weird. Like, I mean, I by no means were doing any of the things that you guys were doing, and I very much so loved the fact that my job was directly supporting the guys on the ground. Like, I had such pride in that, and I knew that if I didn't do my job, then again, like, you guys aren't going to be able to do your job. Um. So I had a huge pride in that. Um. But I did. I mean, I loved everything about being out there. Um, you know, I love the, sim- in my mind, simplicity of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't worry about how your hair is going to look. You don't worry about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat. You know, you just worry about keeping birds up, staying alive, keeping your guys alive and coming home safe. Um, so to me, it was very routine. Mm-hmm. I mean, even though your days are varied between, you know, what your maintenance schedule or what your flight schedule looks like, it's, I mean, it's pretty freaking straightforward. Yeah. And, and that's one of the things that I love, always loved about deployment was, you all of a sudden nothing else in the world matters except for this thing that you're doing you're doing your job whatever that job may be whether it's fixing a helicopter or going out on patrol that's what your life is and like you said there 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 are lives at stake i mean it, it, with your job you know everyone's relying on those helicopters everyone's relying on those helicopters to to do what they need to do to provide extract insert helicopter uh, casualty evacuation i mean it's absolutely critical in every single person that it plays a role in making sure that those things do what they're supposed to do. It's like, yeah, it's absolutely critical. And that becomes your whole life. That becomes your whole focus. And it's, it's, it feels good in my opinion when you have that much focus and clarity in your life. Yeah. No, I mean, I loved it. I mean, that's why I had three months between deployments, four months between deployments. So you come <laughs> home from that first deployment and what what gave you because normally the Marine Corps takes what 12 months to 18 months between deployments for a, a whatever unit somehow you end up going switching to another unit what happened here yeah so towards the end of well towards the second half of that first deployment in May of about 2011 my former gunnery sergeant reached out to me and he said hey you know I want you to come back to Afghanistan with my unit what do you think initially I was like get bent dude there's no way I'm coming back here like I need a break um but sure enough, got home August 2011, you know, went on leave with the family. And then in Jan, or excuse me, in September 2011, was down in K-Bay, won't complain about that, uh, with Heavy Marine Helicopter Squadron 362. Um, and then we were right back in Afghanistan, yeah, Jan- end of January 2012. And then what did that deployment look like? That's when I actually was able to step up um, and, you know, could be proud of those combat action wings. Um, that's when I was actually, you know, a 50 caliber machine gunner, aerial door gunner. Um, and again, you know, I'm still trying wrenches and maintaining the aircraft that I'm flying on. But um, to me, I was, in, in my opinion, um, I was filling a, filling a much bigger purpose. Um, you know, again, the things that you were just rattling off, whether it's, you know, you're sitting there on trap standby waiting for a medevac to get called in or an insertion or extraction, you know, you're just... Um, in my opinion, it was just way um, more high speed, low drag. So you're still doing your maintenance job. Yeah. And then your your other job is w- when they launch, 
some of the times they would need a door gunner and they put you on the 50 cal. Yeah. Well, I mean, so it's a routine thing. So probably every other day, once every three days, I'd be flying. Okay. Yeah. So um, it was just like, here, you're scheduled for flights these yeah. days. And and then what kind of missions were you guys supporting? It could be Everything. a broad spectrum of things. Yeah. I mean, some days it would be just your generic, like, resupplies or you're dropping off mail. Um, and other times, you know, you're doing everything from drug raids to, yeah, I mean, my favorites were the insertions and extractions for sure. Um, and did you already knew how to shoot a 50 cal, but did they fam you up further once you started doing it from the helo? Oh, yeah. That, so I mean, I loved it. They got you dialed in. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. the 50 caliber is such a beautiful piece of machinery. Well, it was funny, too. Well, man, um, when I first decided that I wanted to pick up my wings, like that was even more of a battle than um, you know, even just being a maintainer. Like nobody wants to see a five foot three blonde lady, you know, dragging their knuckles and turning wrenches alongside the dudes. And then now she steps up and says she wants to do speed reloads with 85 pound cans. And then they start looking at you a little funny. Um, so again, proving myself all over again, but I mean, I loved it. Like even when you'd go pick up, you know, the boys from one seven or two five or something, they'd just be looking at you so funny with the little blonde ponytail hanging out the back of the flight helmet. I mean, I just, yeah, I loved it. And then what, so every third day you're going out, the other days you're working and the missions that you're supporting are, are everything. Everything. I mean, we, we would work with the Marines, we'd work with the Australians, we'd work with the Brits, I mean, the Georgians, we'd work with everybody. How, how hot was the AOs that you were working in? Like, how, what was the threat level? How did you feel? Did you feel, were you ever at a point where like, oh yeah, we're, we know we're going to, we know we're going to get contacted or was it the enemy was pretty um, tame in the areas you were going into? Uh, it was kind of hit and miss. I would go back and forth. I mean, you mentioned the 53 earlier. I mean, we're a huge bumblebee. I mean, we're a huge target as it is. Um, you know, certain areas, you know, Lashkarga, you know, Musakala and all of that. Like, sure, those areas, like, for lack of better terms, yeah, I mean, you'd, you'd pucker. Like, I mean, it's very real. I mean, other times, you know, going down to Dwyer, mm -hmm. not so bad, <laughs> you know. And then the the... Did you start feeling any any like stress or were you like just in the zone? Well, it's weird. Like I never really thought about getting hurt ever. I mean, I don't know if maybe it was a young mentality, but I mean, every day when I'd go pick up my blood shit and, you know, grab grab the gear and run out to the bird, it was, I mean, a crashing or getting shut down or any of those things like never even crossed my mind. Mm -hmm. It was just, I want to go out there and do my job. And quite frankly, I mean, flying over you know, anywhere, staying in or any of those areas, the green zone, like Afghanistan is beautiful. Like if you're not getting shot at, you're not terrified. Like, I mean, I, I loved it. I mean, it's, it's a stunning country. And then even just like the interaction that you get with some of the people, I mean, it's pretty special um, sometimes. So then you never expected, you never thought about it. You never thought about getting blown out of the sky. You never thought about any of this stuff. And then all of a sudden, let's talk about June twenty third, two thousand twelve. So, what 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 type of mission were you going out on? Uh, so, we were actually doing a resupply, and then we were dropping off three space available army medics, and then we were going outbound to do an extraction of marines. Um, so, a little bit of everything. I mean, that's pretty common. You just bundle it all together and try to meet the schedules that everybody needs. Um, but I mean, honestly, it should have been fairly routine. Um, so we were making our way to Nauzad and there's a little bit of stuff going on. Like we were getting spotlighted. So it's common out in Afghanistan where basically they try to bloom out the helicopters so the pilots can't see anyways, but they would basically signal to the next stations all the way out to wherever we were going so they could figure out where we were landing. 
Um, we were en route to Nauzad and unfortunately never made it to Nauzad. Um, we were supposed to be dropping off those three army medics and everything from ammo to mail and everything in between. Um, and yeah, the last things that I remember um, was the pilots, or my, excuse me, my tail gunner calling for power. Um, for the for the pilots to level the nose of the aircraft up or off, and pilot came over comms and said he wasn't getting the desired outputs. And the next thing you know, we came nose up and then rolled left. Um, and being on the left gun, night vision goggles down, um, it was weird. I just counted, like just as like normally, like as a as a door gunner, you're the eyes and the ears for the pilot. So when you're landing, especially a big piece of machinery like that, it's five, four, three, two, ones main mains on deck. And that's all I did. And then we hit the ground. Um, you know, there's a lot more embellished stories out there. But, yeah. That's and you version. remember all that stuff? Yeah. Um, that's what I remember. Um, there's a lot that you know, I was knocked out. Um, the assumption is the barrel of my 50 cal, which obviously sticks way out the side of the helicopter, hit the ground before I did and came up and through my face. So had some pretty pretty severe damage to my face and then my right frontal lobe. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, I was in and out. Did you ever piece together with the pilots? Like, what happened? I think, he, I mean, in my opinion, he just choked. I mean, there, wa- there was pressure. I mean, it was, you know, brown out circumstances. We were being spotlighted. There was small arm stuff going on around us. Nothing that was a real threat to us by any means. But, um, you know, actually, my last memory of being in Afghanistan on Camp Bastion in this little makeshift hospital I won't say his name, but um, was the pilot um, sitting by my bedside and just sitting there and crying. And then um, I found out later that he actually DOR'd. Um, so I know there's a lot of guilt there. Um, I mean, I've forgiven the situation for sure. But, um, but yeah. So the helo crashes and you're knocked out. What's your, what's your first memory of after being knocked out? Um, so everybody, like, my pilots were screaming for my tail gunner um, who... I mean, I just idolized this dude. Um, and um, they couldn't find him. They couldn't get a reaction from him at first. So I started screaming. Like, I'm hearing all of this going on. And it's not real. I wasn't in pain. I wasn't in shock. I wasn't crying. It was just like, holy shit, find my tail gunner. Um, and I don't know the details of what exactly happened or how exactly it happened. Um, but he ended up going out the back and hitting the river rocks before we actually hit the ground. Um, I don't know if he was coming off of his gunner's belt to get to one of the three available seats on the other side of the aircraft or what he was doing. Um, but he went out the back. And so I just started screaming to get a reaction. Luckily over time they got a reaction from him and, uh, like all of it was just pure freaking chaos. But I remember like rolling my tongue around my mouth because I couldn't breathe out of my nose and there were no teeth. Everything was shattered. There was just like a big hole. Um, and then it was just gurgling because you know, I couldn't breathe out of my nose, couldn't breathe out of my mouth. And one of the Army medics actually crawled all of the, over all of these trials that we had and got in my face. And I remember reading his, you know, his patch. Um, and he was just in my face trying to keep me basically out of shock. Um, and then they called in. This is one of my favorite stories, so I hope 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines is listening. <laughs> but they called 2-5 out of Nazad to come out and provide security. And uh, obviously, you know, help with stripping everything down. And when they called it in, um, whoever said it, you know, said, you know, the female gunner, dead on impact um, because they couldn't get a response from me. Long story short, they come out um, and put me in the other aircraft, our lead aircraft, along with uh, my tail gunner and the rest of the crew and get us out of there and back to Camp Bastion. Well, 
long story short, I'll fast forward a little bit. Um, Second Battalion, Fifth Marines ended up shooting these pistol rounds underwater. And when they, when that's done, they bloom out into flowers. And they got them back to me in this little wooden case and said, for fl- fl- um, flowers that'll never die, just like you. Um, but yeah, I mean, every single one of those dudes now to this day, like they laugh. They're like, we didn't think it was true. They're like, bullshit, there's not a female on that aircraft. <laughs> so. It was the, whenever I think of a helicopter crashing, I think of it exploding and being on fire. So how did it not, was it, did it survive kind of intact? No. Okay, no. so it was just. You know, so uh, I actually have a little bit of, um, I've, there was a G-Boss out right outside of Nauza, so I have actually seen what happened when we hit the ground. So when we hit the ground, the transi- transition section came off, and of course, like the tail pylon and everything just went flying, um, the rotors and all of that. Um, but I mean, it wasn't salvageable. I mean, they just took the guns and a couple other things off of it, and then they just Blow it up. And you were the worst injury, worst casualty on the helo, right? Yes. And that's probably because, like you said, you were the door gunner on the on the left side. On and the I'll, left side. And, and to be totally honest, probably just because of my size. I mean, my 50 cal on a GAL 21 mount, you know, sits up damn near on my chest on me. So You've got some pictures on your, I think it's your Facebook, of your face. <laughs> and it's freaking crazy. I was like, holy, I mean, it is, it's like fully exposed. Like you're, you're, you are hurt bad. Yeah. Bad. And um, so, so what, then when's your next memory? When's your next memory? Did they put you in an induced coma? What'd they do with you? No, they didn't give me any, any medicine. <laughs> oh, pissed me off. I sat there in so much pain. So I woke back up um, in route to Camp Bastion and this dude, Comstock, he was the, the new left door gunner on the other aircraft. He bent down next to me, um, and he just basically told me, he's like, don't close your fucking eyes because you're not going to open them again. And um, the, my tail gunner, uh, my old gunnery sergeant, was actually laying next to me because we were just laying on the floorboard of the aircraft. And he kept throwing his arm over my face to keep from getting hydraulic and fluid and stuff all in my open wounds and whatnot. And so I'm laying there and I'm like trying not to cry. I'm panicking that like I'm going to die without seeing my little sister because I have no idea what's going on. Like I was numb. I knew I was hurt, but I didn't really – it was weird. I couldn't feel anything. And then I just kept staring at this blue cabin overhead light and thinking I wasn't going to die without seeing my little sister. What about your leg? Did you, did you, were you aware that your leg was jacked up? I was well aware that my leg was jacked up because that was, I mean, I was in pain. Like, that's the only thing that actually hurt. Um, for whatever reason, like, I could feel that and nothing else. Um, yeah, that was just, <laughs> that was pretty brutal. Um, but, yeah, and then they got me back to Camp Bastion. And I remember thinking, like, that's fucking fine. Like, they're just going to sew me back up. I'm going to go right back to this. Like, we're almost on our way out. We're going to, you know, go home in August. Um, it's totally fine. And then my gunnery sergeant, the one who asked me, to go on that deployment, and my sergeant major at the time walked in, and they were looking at me, and they're both crying and just staring at me. I'm like, "Oh shit! I'm like this is this is not good." Um, and I think that's when the when I realized like I was going home. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was devastated. I think that was the hardest part of, of of any of it was just having to leave everybody behind. I mean, even once I left Camp Bastion, you know, they sent me to Kandahar, Germany, DC, and then I made it back to San Diego. Um, and I had been, I had just been combat meritoriously promoted to sergeant. And um, when you were, when you were getting the the whole 
evacuation to Germany? Are people meeting with you? Are you are you starting to get a glimpse or, or a feeling for what's going on? Yes and no. Um, like I, I mean, I knew what was going on. I, di- I didn't quite understand, obviously, the whole process. But I was pissed off, and I wasn't really letting anyone help or explain to me anything. Um, actually. It didn't really help the situation. Sorry, Mom. But when I was in, it would have either been Germany or Kandahar. They finally let me call home because, um, of course, my CEO gets a hold of my parents and, you know, my dad answers the phone. Well, eventually I can call home, but I can't talk because, there's you know, there's there's no jaw or anything. So I'm trying to tell my mom, like, I'm coming home, and um, my mom starts laughing at me. And she's like, you know, baby girl, I can't understand you. You must be on some really good drugs. And I get pissed. I'm like, fuck you, Mom. And hang up the phone on her. And then I don't talk to anybody. Like, I'm that mad, you know. And then, you know, they're loading me up. Like, I'm pissed off at my mom. I'm angry that I'm leaving my dudes. Like, I'm just I'm just a shit show. Um, and then they load me up to actually – they don't have me induced. They don't have me sedated or anything. They load me up in Germany to send me to D.C. Why don't they have you induced? Or is it because you had brain trauma or something? Yeah, so they wouldn't give me anything for pain right off the bat, especially because of the head trauma. Um, but – but yeah, so then from Germany, somebody that was just in a helicopter crash, they don't put them to sleep for a flight from Germany to D.C. <laughs> and so then I'm on this thing. Like, they have me strapped down to a gurney. There's a bunch uh, of other dudes with, like, their legs blown off, people sitting on the sides of the aircraft, like, just staring at me as I'm losing my mind. <laughs> my lungs are sticking together, so I can't breathe. I mean, it was it was a terrible, terrible journey back. Let's put it that way. Um, but I think once I made it to D.C., and then, you know, they're carrying us all off on the stretchers and stuff like that. And, you know, there's American flags and supporters and people out there, you know, telling you that it's going to be okay. I think in that moment, like, I realized that I it was going to be okay, um, but I still didn't quite – I think I was scared of of what was going to happen, you know, basically that I wouldn't be able to stay in. <sighs> that was the fear. That was the fear. The fear that you couldn't – you wouldn't be able to stay in the Marine Corps. Yeah. How long had you been in for at this point? Four years. Just made sergeant. Yep. Were your parents waiting for you when you got to D.C.? No, they were waiting for me in San Diego. Um, so it was hard for them to decide, you know, of course, both Marines being, or both parents being Marines. There's not a ton of money floating around my family. Mm-hmm. So they, you know, we needed to wait to figure out if I was going to be a polytrauma in D.C. or a polytrauma in San Diego. Um, so as soon as we got word that I was going to go to San Diego, that's when they, like, Sold everything in the house. You know, we loaded up in the car, or they loaded up in the car, and they made it out to San Diego. Did they actually sell their house? No, Just they sold everything, everything in, it. in it. Literally everything in it. And where were, were they down in Florida still? Yeah. So they sold everything that they had in Florida. Well, how long were you in D.C. for? Not too long. I mean, I maybe a handful of days, four or five days. And then straight to Balboa. Yep. Uh, and what are you thinking at this point in terms of your level of your injuries? Have you seen your Have you seen yourself in a mirror yet? Because if I would have seen the picture that you posted, <laughs> that would have that would have like hit me pretty damn hard. Well, so that's actually why they took those pictures. So it was actually really cute when when I got. This wheeled. doesn't sound cute. Actually. <laughs> I, know, I don't yeah. know what's cute about this. But. Yeah. You had a hole in your face. No. Um, so when they wheeled me in, uh, again, this little makeshift hospital tent. Um, there was a, actually a British plastic surgeon that was volunteering her time, this little sweet – she was old, like an old lady. And she looked at everybody in there and was like, no one touch her. I'm sewing her back up. So it was, you know, as far as my face goes. Um, and so she took those pictures. And when I finally came to, after she sewed my face up initially, she was like, I don't want you to freak out when you see this. Like, this is what we started with. 
Um, and so that's where those pictures actually came from. Dang. No, that's, they're savage. Yeah. They're savage. <laughs> but, so you saw those pretty quickly? Yep. But then you got to see she did a damn good job. Yeah. I mean, it's like a miracle. She was a miracle worker, she, this little lady. I'm just, I'm so thankful <laughs> Corman didn't touch me. My yeah. chin would be in, <laughs> near my eye. You would have had a th- an E3 Corman. <laughs> yeah, oh. that would have been, that would have not been good. <laughs> no, no offense to E3 Corman. No. They're doing their best, but, you know, obviously some experienced, uh, plastic surgeon's going to do a better job. Yeah, that was yeah, that was rough. So so that's good. How about your leg? What are you feeling in your leg? So my leg I knew was a bad deal from the get-go. So they, nobody would touch it. No one overseas would even was willing to mess with it. What had happened to it? So when, so when we hit the ground, there's a bone in the middle of your foot called a talus. It snapped and shot everything up. So damaged the heel and up through like my tib fib and everything. Um Something I don't I don't know what it was. I mean, obviously I have steel toe boots that we fly in and all of that, but yeah, something was underneath it with enough force that it sh- broke everything upward and pushed everything up. And it's what does it look like on the outside? Is it like a compound fracture? Or is it all internal damage? Um, no, I mean it was all internal damage. I mean everything. I mean there was no. There, from my leg, there was no blood. Did it seem, because it seems to me that that would, like if I had that happen, like, oh, it hurts a lot, but it's all there, there's no blood, I'm gonna be good. That would be yeah. my opinion, because I'm kind of, uh, I always think I'm gonna survive everything. You yeah, know? <laughs> no, oh, I hear you. No, like, well, I think what worried me was, like I said, the fact that everybody was looking at it and being like, uh, we're not gonna do anything about it. And nobody did anything about it for like a week, 10 days. Um, and then finally someone came in and said, well, this is what your deal is um, because of the damage that has been caused. You've disrupted all of the blood flow to those bones. So those bones are going to have vascular necrosis and they're all going to die. And I opted for the doctors to not cut it off right away. Um, I told them, like, look, let's fix my spine. Let's fix my face. Let's fix my fucking brain. Um, and then we can worry about my leg. And so the, the, let's go through that order. The face, they sew you up, mm-hmm. did a great job with that. Your brain, so you got knocked out, you got, I mean, you got wailed on, your head got wailed on in this accident. What do you, are you getting headaches? Is your memory, like what were, what were the symptoms that you noticed out of the gate? Um, the biggest thing, right, I mean, currently the biggest thing is still my memory. Like, I mean, I have solid chunks of it and I've like made a really conscious effort and thank God for, again, my mom, my sister and my dad for really working with working with me for that stuff. But um, for a while, I mean, it was, I mean, everything, the biggest thing was being able to control my mood. Um, I had a real issue with mood stabilization. There was just like a constant anxiety no matter what, and then I couldn't sleep. Um, So, of course, all of those things together on top of like word recognition and word retrieval and being able to communicate effectively with doctors or your parents or friends, like what you need, that was the hardest part. Um, And then like, I don't know if you've ever been down to Balboa, but I mean, they have this whole building for their patients to live. and so I lived in, I mean, it was just like a little bedroom, like a little tiny condo thing. But I could go into the bathroom and just not know what the hell was going on. Like, I had to be reminded that if I'm in the bathroom, I'm taking a shower, brushing my teeth, washing my hands. Um, so, like, I had to have a very specific routine to be able to, like, get all pistons firing. Is that, did you, did you notice progress over time? Oh yeah. So you could you see the progress? I guess is what I'm asking, or were you just like, what is this not getting any better? Uh, the first year, 
I really, really struggled um, because you get frustrated. You compare yourself to how you were, um, you know, whether that's physically, mentally, or emotionally. Like, it's just if it's not one thing, it's another. Um, so I was – the first year was really, really difficult. But, you know, once I made it over that hump – I mean, I'm pretty proud to say that it's been like I mean, I've tried like hell. I've given this everything that I have. Um, that it's been like on a cu- constant upswing at this point. Um, I mean, I still go to speech therapy to this day, but I mean that helps with everything from cognitive to again just the the verbal stuff too. Um, but I mean, it's it's work. Mm-hmm. How about the cervical spine? What what like what was the were you feeling numbness in your body parts or anything like that? Like I had I had neck surgery because I I hurt my spine. And like I had woke up one day and I in the middle of the night, I couldn't move my right arm like it would not move, which is a really scary thing. And, you know, eventually it all came back. But what what was your cervical spine injury? Did you break vertebrae? So there was hairline fractures in my C2, C3 and C4. And then just from the so like being in the aircraft, there are these I mean, they're tethers. I mean, they go around your rib cage and tether you to the floorboard so you don't go flying anywhere should a helicopter crash or something happen. Um, and so when we hit the ground, it was like the helicopter went one way and I went the other. Um, so it kind of just like, I, I guess, be severe whiplash. It's mega whiplash. Yeah. Um, and so then my C2, C3, and C4 did what's called stepping. So they were basically zigzagged. One was out of place. <laughs> Let's put it that way. <laughs> but it didn't, did it affect your spinal cord at all? No. No. I, um, That's I a game of there. millimeters right there, too. Yeah. And I... Uh, that was scary. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. And I mean, I, I didn't know what to do in that moment either, because now you're playing with, again, no offense to military medicine. I'm super thankful that I am where I am today. But now you're looking at this situation where it's like, is it that bad to fix it? You know, do you let them go in and do surgery or do you let it heal on its own? Do you live your life in a C-spine for the next year or two? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's just a huge gamble with all of it. You so know, what call the, did you make? I lived in a sea spine for a long time. So you lived in the dang, uh, that big thing that you wear around your neck? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're not turning it, and you're not uh, moving your shoulders up and down. You're doing nothing. Um, yeah. And then, you know, obviously damage to the arms. Um, the head trauma also, like, messed up the backside of my right eye. Of course, your eardrums are going to get blown out and all that good stuff in a helicopter crash. But the hardest part for me, my, you know, I think all too often people look at me like, oh, God, she's missing her left leg. That has to be terrible. But the reality is if I didn't keep my head and my heart in the right place, then nothing else was going to get better. So fixing fixing my brain and um, fixing what I had going on emotionally, that was the hard part. So you're in the hospital for like, ugh, I mean, how long are you in the hospital for? Two years. Two years. Yep. From 2012 to, 14. to 2014. When you're when you're going through one of the things that you talk about is you're going through your anniversary is it called an anniversary your alive oh, day okay. uh, a year after and you got to a point where you're like I don't know if I can do this yeah um, so I think my my doctors and my leadership if you will. Um, I had a lot of people come into my hospital room and sit there and tell me I wanted to go to the drill field so bad, so freaking bad. Um, and so I had all of these people coming. And I even had the CG of um, uh, MCRD come over and say, you're going to be the first drill instructor that's, you know, an amputee and you're going to go right back into the fight and this, that and the other. And on one hand, like I use that to really push myself physically to get better. But on the other hand, like I think it misled, misled me um, quite a bit. 
So when I got word after my um, second med board that I was unfit for duty um, due to the injuries, um, I lost it. Like that's when I knew that I had one more shot at staying in the Marine Corps and it wasn't going to ever be to fly again. I was going to be the desk job that I really didn't want, you know, from the get go. Um, and even still, I mean, that wasn't even promised. So I, I don't know, like dealing with the injuries and specifically my leg, that's not getting better, obviously still processing a ton of stuff. Um, and then finding out that this, the one thing that I really loved at that point in time, uh, my purpose, uh, was now getting pulled out from underneath my feet. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess you, you have to hit rock bottom, you know, to, to be able to rebuild everything. And I truly did. <coughs> You got a couple things in here that that you wrote about, just like your, your your mom, your dad. You said, my dad's been one of my best friends and biggest fans since day one. He's given me tough love af- I needed after injury, but also motivated me in ways to continue creating and chasing dreams. I'm alive and well thanks to my family. I appreciate you being as stubborn as I am, dad. You, you uh, talk about your mom. You said, my mom used to look at me sitting in my wheelchair and say, do it your damn self. That right there has got to be for a parent, and I, I got four kids, but the temptation for parents always is to try and just take, give your kids everything that you can to help them. And that, I've said many times, actually hurts your kid. And here's an example, not of a child, but of, hit, of your mom talking to a 20, whatever, three-year-old woman and saying, you got to do this yourself. Mm-hmm. That has to leave a mark. Yeah, I am. Um, I mean, I'm not a parent, so I don't. I don't totally get that. You know, that side of things. But I mean, my dad. Again, one of the things. I mean, I'll get into the nitty gritty of it because I'm transparent. But so on June 23rd, 2012, like if you're gonna kill yourself, you're not gonna. You're not gonna tell anybody. You're just gonna go off and do it. Um, and so I went down to the Blythe River and. Um, had some friends with me because we're going to celebrate and all this stuff. And then I decided that I'm over it. Like, I, I don't want to be doing it anymore. Um, do what I need to do. And I'm going to w- walk myself out into the Blythe River and draw myself, disappear. And no one's going to have to deal with deal with me or my problems. I'm not going to be a burden anymore. Um, long story short, I'm lucky that I woke up the next day um, surrounded by people that did save me. And... Um, my dad came to me and crying. My dad doesn't cry. My dad's this big tattooed dude that's semi-scary sometimes. Um, and he said, you've got to be shitting me. You know, the enemy couldn't kill you. You made it home. Now you're going to do it for him. And that's the moment I realized that I was being selfish. It's the moment that I realized that I had a lot more to live for and that I had a lot to be grateful for. So then I decided that I was going to turn my life around. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I don't know what that's like for my dad, um, especially like he's always been hard on me. He's always been the one to really set those standards for me. I mean, pun intended, like he's the reason that I hold, you know, he holds my foot to the fire for me. Um, and even to this day, like he doesn't do interviews, you know, I'm constantly like doing media stuff here and there. But, you know, one day he was asked, you know, you know, are you proud of your daughter? And he's like, well, yeah, I'm proud of her. But the moment she stops paying it forward, she deserves to have it all taken away. And I have lived my life like that. You know, those little one-liners that sometimes look at my dad and I'm like, oh, <laughs> like, thanks. But, you know, like, I hang on to those. Um, 
I mean, he really is. He's the one that holds me accountable, like, through and through, through all of it. Um, and then my mom, God love her, toughest lady I know, because, again, even, like, raising me. Well, um, but then for her to, like, I mean, I could see it. Even those moments when she's telling me to do it myself, like, there's tears in her eyes. Like, she wants to do it for me, but she knows the moment that she steps in and, and you know, coddles the situation. I'm not going to be independent. You know, I'm not going to move past these, inju- past these injuries and live a healthy, happy life. So, I mean, I, I can't imagine the the internal like turmoil that you go through and I'm sure it's a battle and for you to go through this like l- actual 180 degree transition from I don't want to live anymore to I want to live the best life I possibly can it, how, w- how long did that transition take this is like a couple days that you w- went got there or is it your you, when your dad said those words to you you just said you know what I'm wrong Yep. And I need to get on the right path. That's it. He said, I mean, I think I think in that moment, I, for whatever reason, I mean, I'll, I'll never understand it, but for whatever reason, at that time, God spared me twice. And I'm not even a religious person, but God spared me twice. So obviously there's a reason that I'm, I'm still here. Somebody, something kept me here. And then the dude that I, you know, respect and admire the most coming to me and saying that, like, I mean, that just destroyed me. I mean, as, as if I couldn't get any lower, you know, him saying that, I was like, you know what, you, know, you decide. Like, I can't control the helicopter crash. I can't control what this crazy, vicious world threw at me. I, I can't control that. But what I can control is how I'm going to respond. Um, and it is. I mean, I, I wholeheartedly believe it's a choice. When you were, not to dwell on this subject too long, but, you know, a lot of people that listen to this podcast are people that served and people that end up in some rough spots when you were descending into that place mentally how long did that take I mean is it something that you woke up one day and said I'm sick of this or is it was like just the grind that beat you down over time where you said look this is this is just not worth it right now it was the grind I mean it's not I mean it's not an instant thing I mean, like, again, don't get me wrong. I'm not the person that walked around and talked about it. Like, you know, I wasn't screaming for attention. I was just going to go and do it. Um, but, I mean, it was just one of those things where it felt like nothing was ever getting better. You know, it was just digging this hole, digging this grave, you know, deeper and deeper. You know, when I asked you about the progress of your injury, that was, like, actually a really personal question for me because I'm the type of person, if I notice Point zero zero one percent improvement in something. I'm like, oh, there you go. See, I'm on the right path. This is going to get better. And when I don't have that happening, that that's that's like when I don't have that happening, I it it's like when I don't notice any improvement, I I start feeling like, oh no, like it's I'm on the wrong path right now. This is not going to get better. It's kind of like how I felt with with my neck. My neck got jacked up. All of a sudden, I can't move my arm. All of a sudden, you know, I'm going. Oh, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. And it's not getting better. Yep. And yeah, that, that's the, the grind thing of like, hey, this is, get, this is getting worse and it's not gonna get better. And for me, like now, when I look at, like I never recovered the strength that I have in my, in my right tricep and my right pec. Like I got some of it back, but not all of it. And it's like, okay, at some point I just was like, okay, cool, that's the way it is. And I think that happens to people where you have to, you have to look at the situation and say, well, it's what you just said. Listen, I can't control that. I can't control what happened to my neck. You can't control what happened to this helicopter crash. What happened, happened. What am I going to do now? And I got that. I was actually getting some uh, 
social media responses about just someone was talking about so me and my buddy Leif who is on the SEAL teams with we wrote a book called Extreme Ownership and it's like you take ownership of everything in your world right and there's people that will say oh if you get cancer how are you going to take ownership of that how is that because yeah when something goes wrong it's my fault that's that's the way I look at things right when something goes wrong it's my fault that's why I look at everything if something's not going the way it should be it's my fault so how do you take ownership if you get if you get cancer like how do you take ownership of that and the answer is you don't take ownership for getting cancer that's not that's not but you take ownership for how you're going to react to it you take ownership for your response you can't take ownership look the helo crashed what for whatever reason it could be a million different things that that helo crashed the helo crashed you okay what do you do you can't take ownership of that crash what you take ownership of is your response to that, your response to your injuries. And that's, to me, is the most powerful thing that a person has because that gives you some level of control over circumstances that are truly beyond your control. Yep, I mean, I've said it from pretty much since June 23rd, uh, 2013. You know, the right actions follow the right perspectives. I mean, I could sit here and I could bitch about everything that I've lost. I could bitch about, you know, lost memory, a lost leg, a lost military career, lost years of my life, you know, to the hospital and to recovery, or I can look at what I've gained. Had this not happened, I wouldn't be sitting here with you. I wouldn't be doing the things that I'm doing. I wouldn't be living this very different purpose on a totally different platform than I was before. Um, so I can take it with a grain of salt, look at it as a blessing and a curse, one that I, a curse that I wouldn't wish on anyone, my own worst enemy. And then, you know, I can just keep going on about my day. It's just, that's it. At what point, so so now you're two years in the hospital, so 2014, you get out of the hospital and you start living, is that when you get medically retired? Yeah, <laughs> May 2014. May 2014, you get out, and what do you do when you get out? What's your, what, what do you, what do you move into? Are you live? you're living in San Diego at this time? Yep, yeah. Um, living in OB. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, so there is two, like, so, I mean, I got it growing up again, that academic thing and that, that athletic thing, I didn't struggle with it. And now I find myself in this position, getting out of the Marine Corps, I'm like, I'm not the same person that I knew physically. And I'm definitely not the same person I knew mentally. Um, but I really wanted to finish my first master's and, while I was still in, the doctors looked at me and they were like, there's no way that we're going to approve you for tuition assistance or any of this. Like, you're going to fail your classes. There's no way. Are you serious? Yeah. Well, so I went to my speech therapist and said, hey, can you download this program, Read and Write Gold, onto my computer? I'm going to figure this out. Like, I'm going to finish this last year in my master's. Um, ended up getting that master's in psychology um, with a C average, so barely. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, like, determined to prove those doctors wrong. And um, every single one of them kept telling me, like, if you don't use it, you're going to lose it. Like, you have to continue training and rewiring your brain. So then I just I didn't stop. I just kept going to school. Like, the moment that I got out, just kept going. And um, obviously used the post-911 GI Bill and then started racking up scholarships. Um, so I did school, like, wholeheartedly. So I, this is 2014. Mm-hmm. You get out of the hospital and you're, like, diving into school hardcore yeah you keep talking about going to speech therapy and i've been listening really intently trying to figure out why you need speech therapy <laughs> I and i have found nothing so far super articulate you know nailing every word pronouncing pronouncing everything awesome so what was like your lowest point for speech was it because the damage that had been done to your jaw was it your brain damage or was it just both and how bad was it was there a point where 
you know, where you weren't able to carry on a conversation. Yeah, so in the very beginning. Because let's face it, right now, you're doing a damn good job. <laughs> well, thank you. No, so in the very beginning, it really was. It was, be, it was getting my brain to fire to be able to express myself. To, again, to retrieve the words that I was actually looking for. Now it's more of like nerve and all of that, the trauma, like the physical trauma. Now it's like, I was trying not to point it out, but like R's and S's, I'll try to avoid that. Hmm. Um, but yeah. You just said both of them perfectly. Well, like the sound <laughs> <laughs> they make. Um, but yeah, like actually when I was trying to say rewiring just now, there's a lot of effort into oh. that. But, but yeah. Um, but so like the head trauma, that was that was one thing that I really focused on. And then um, around that time, I actually started competing in snowboarding. So you got your bad leg. <laughs> bad brain. <laughs> you got your bad leg, bad brain. Good band, by the way. And you and you decided it's cool. Like, look, we're going to start snowboarding, which you're from Florida. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> OK. Uh, oh, where'd that come from? One. Yeah. Um, no, so I, there was an organization that came into my hospital room when I was actually still living at the hospital um, and still active duty. And they came in, they just said, how do you feel about learning a winter sport? And this was in t- the end of 2013. And I was just like, you know what? Anything, just get me out of the hospital. Well, again, me being me, um, my doctors cleared me to sit ski. But then when I show up in Breckenridge, Colorado, no one asked me for you know a medical clearance or anything. I'm like, well, shit, snowboarding looks cool. I'm going to try that one instead. And I ended up picking it up really quickly, and I loved it. Um, and, you know, it's just one of those things that reminds you of your independence and resiliency, and, you know, no one can do it for you. So then I just kept with it. And what was it like on your bad leg? I mean, it was painful. I mean, and I had, a, I have, I had like, a little, this weird Kevlar, like, like carbon fiber contraption that basically took all of the weight off of my lower limb and put it all onto my knee at the time. So, I mean, I had a little bit of help, but I mean, it was, I mean, it was painful, but it was worth it. I mean, I, I mean, I wasn't stopping. I mean, I was still dealing with surgeries. I mean, gosh, I was having a surgery once every eight to 12 weeks and Eesh. then having the recovery. And so, I mean, I would and, sneak ooh. away from Balboa and go to Big Bear. <laughs> go you, you have issues. <laughs> do, do you, uh, were most of the surgeries on your leg or were they on everything? Yeah. Yeah. My leg. So between... Between my leg and my face, that's where the majority of them came from, but 44 now. They told you out of the gate that a bunch of your bones were going to die in your leg, yeah. and they were right. And and at some point, like, um, you're, you're, are they giving you the prediction, like, hey, this isn't, this isn't going to last? Yep. I mean, toward the end of my efforts, if you will, um, I mean, they were coming in, they're like, this is a Christopher Columbus surgery at this point. Like, we're going to go in and we're going to try and do, whether it was bone grafting or nerve decompression or whatever, it was like, we don't even know what we're going to find anymore. Um, and finally, I came to terms with it and said, you know what, you can have it. Um, w- was that before or after you did the walk in England? So my walk was my send off to my leg. Okay. That was. So, <laughs> so you decided, I got this bad leg, I got brain damage, I got everything else going on, but I'm going to go walk a thousand miles. Yes. <laughs> in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. How, how'd that come about? Um, so actually there was a, a couple of um, older Marines that, was, that were, was working for an organization called Bob Woodruff Foundation. And they heard about this event called Walking with the Wounded that, you know, they've done everything from the North Pole and the South Pole. And it was kind of just like this pilot idea. Um, and they were just looking for people stupid enough to walk a thousand miles. <laughs> and sure enough, one of them's me. Um, 
But no, so they came up and they were just like, hey, we're thinking about sponsoring this event that's going to raise money for American and British soldiers that are dealing with specifically brain injuries, had trauma, and, um, you know, invisible injuries of all sorts. And in the moment, I was just like, you know what? The leg's coming off anyways. I don't care if I trash it. Um, so let's do this 1,000 miles. And then literally seven days after I got home, they cut my leg off. <laughs> the 1,000 miles that you walked, you were with – at some point, you were with Prince Harry. Yep. And he's a legit dude. He is a legit dude. I will give him that. Like, I, mean, <laughs> I won't the, give him any other compliments. Uh, I mean, he, he, well, he's at least legit that he, you know, he, he served. I mean, he, he fought in Afghanistan. I don't know if he, was he in Iraq? I don't, I don't know if Just he's in Iraq. But yeah, and there's some pretty cool stuff of him. There's a cool, there's a cool little video of someone's interviewing him, and then like the alarm sounds and he runs off to go get some. Yep. And and so that was cool. And, and you had some, some interaction with him? Yeah. Um, so my personal spin on that thousand miles, like, of course, I was over there to raise awareness and, and fundraise, but I made 25 memorial dog tags for Marines who either never came home or they killed themselves when we got back home. And I carried each one for 40 miles with a poem um, and left them all across England, Scotland, and Wales with the intention that a stranger would find them and honor our fallen. You know, we, we shed blood together. We deserve to heal or, you know, men wounds together, if you will. And uh, he actually helped me lay a few of my dog tags. And then I left the final one um, with him at Buckingham Palace. And then on what's their Veterans Day, he carried it to the Senator for me. Um, so again, he really is a great dude. His, his heart's in the right place for sure. And that was one of your friends, TJ? Is that, is that the final dog tag? So actually, that's... Um, Pretty sad story, actually. Um, so there was two gentlemen that were in the hospital with me. They were blown up 10 days before I got hurt. Um, so they were with 1-7. Um, and, of course, you know, me being the 53 unit, we were doing constantly doing stuff with those guys, you know, insertions and extractions and stuff. And uh, the two gentlemen that were with 1-7, you know, we went through all of our recoveries together. And TJ was actually one of um, – was the guy that passed away when they lost their legs. Um so I didn't. I never knew him. He was never really a friend. It was more so for them. And his, yeah, his his wife. So then you get done with that, walking a thousand miles, and you come back to San Diego, and pre-planned, you get back and you're like, okay, this this my my foot is gonna die, and let's move forward with this, getting rid of it. Yep. There's a, 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 um, a, like a video, like mini documentary um, about you. It's done by, Co- by Cosmopolitan, <laughs> which is um, some kind of a magazine. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird fit for me, but yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I watched this video and man, um, there's, there's a video of you and you're walking on the beach and you're barefoot walking on the beach you're walking on Ocean Beach, by the way, <laughs> and there's the pier in the background, and you're like saying, "Yeah, you know, I'm I'm walking on the beach because I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. I'm not going to be able to feel the sand on my on my foot anymore." That has got to be the the hardest decision that you've had to make. It, I mean, for a person, right? Like you have at least this. Like, I mean, I. The sand. I mean, I, I surf and like I I live by the beach. I love the ocean and walking barefoot on the sand is like totally a thing that is real. <laughs> like it's the best thing. 
and I'm sitting there thinking you had been living in OB at the time and crazy that you're sitting there saying, yep, I'm going to, I'm going to walk on the sand for the last time right now. This is it. This is the last time I get to feel the sand between my toes. It's the last time I get to wade around in this water. Yep. It was one of those things where it's like, it's your quality of life. I was living a life that I, you know, I wasn't happy with as far as like living a life of constant recovery and pain, a lot of drugs. I mean, I'd be lying if I told you I was like sober when I did the thousand mile walk. There was a lot of medication involved in that. Um, but, you know, like it's just one of those things. It was, I was ready to close that chapter and just move forward. You know, there's there was a lot of things that I wanted to do with my life or that I am doing um, and still want to do with my life. And the thing is also important to note is they were going to they were going to take your foot, your shin, leave your tib fib, which. I I can't fully express this, but I do know from friends that have had above the knee and below the knee amputation. The difference between above the knee amputation and below the knee amputation is absolutely massive. The amount of articulation that you have in your knee is just, it is incredible compared to when you lose your knee. Yeah, I mean, I'll never bitch about being an an amputee. I'm thankful that I'm alive. but I would do anything to get my knee back. Well, the initial surgery, they they do what they said they're going to do. They, whatever, midway up your calf or somewhere they leave they leave enough knee. And this was right around, was this right around Thanksgiving? Yep. Mm-hmm. So right around Thanksgiving, you get this initial surgery. And for you, it's going to be liberating because you're not going to have to worry about this pain. You can get the the feet that will work better than your foot. That's what it boils down to. I guess that's when I was talking about like all this stuff about the sand and getting all crazy with that. (laughs) The bottom line is you were thinking, hey, hey, that's great feeling, but I'm actually gonna be able to be better off with, you know, with with, uh, the, the different varieties of prosthetic feet and ankles and all the stuff that they can give you. I mean, there's many people that have deployed after they've gotten, you know, uh, a, a below the knee surgery, I don't know how many people have above, but there, I'm sure there has been some. But it's a lot different. It is. It's a lot different, and um, so you get that surgery, and it was it was, I guess it was a bad surgery. There was a there was an infection. Is what happens. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, again, won't go too far into that one, but that yeah, that was definitely some malpractice on that one. Um, but uh, yeah. Instead of using staples, they use stitches. They never put a wound back on. There was a number of things. I was turned away from the emergency room three times. And they're telling me that it was fine. Um, and then finally, you know, I mean, it was bad. I mean, it was really, really bad. Um, and uh, they finally, there was actually um, a doctor from Scripps that was, like, filling in for one of the doctors down in the ER at Balboa. And she saw my leg, and she was like, oh, hell no. Like, take everybody – like, don't even put her in x-rays. Like, take everybody out of the OR. Like, I'm going in with her. And they ended up cutting out the um, half of my knee. They left my patella. Um, and then they went back in, and they said that that wasn't enough. Um, and they took out my patella, and they did an above the knee. So they um, guillotine cut my, my femur. <laughs> Here's a note from you, December 20th, 2015. I am awake and out of surgery for today. I lost a lot of muscle due to infection. 
unless I have a Christmas miracle, they'll be taking my knee tomorrow. These are the times it's easy to give up. December 23rd, 2015 update. The infection almost killed me. It was eating the muscles in my leg. They saved my life, plain and simple. I am an above the knee amputee, but I am healthier now. Still fighting the infection and more surgery, 10 a.m., which could make me a hip dysartic. Which could be worse, but nothing I can't beat. They're, they are trying their best. Said they've never seen anything so bad as to what was going on in my leg. I know I can beat this. I just hope they don't have to go too high on this limb. Mentally and emotionally, this is the hardest thing I've ever dealt with. I am terrified. Yep. When they came in and said that they might take my hip, I didn't want them to wake me back up. Like, do not bring me out of that surgery room. Keep me asleep. You take, I mean, God love, kudos to anybody that's sitting in a bucket and has to live their life as a hip desertic. Yeah, that news was, was awful. And yeah, I didn't think I was going to have the courage to keep going. I didn't want to keep going at that point. But yeah. In the beginning of that, when you were reading it, I was sitting here thinking, God, I was full of shit. I'm just telling everybody, like, it's going to be okay. But I'm I'm glad that I at least finished that with I'm terrified because it's honest. It's true. December 24th, 2015. So this is the next two, the next day, Christmas Eve. I am, I am alive, so I am happy. I received nothing but good news about my leg, and it looks great. Being an above-the-knee amputee will be challenging at first, and all I can say is bring it on. On another note, I am very sick and will be for quite some time. They found three bacterial infections, including MRSA. They also found blood clots in my arm. They put a pick line in. This is a life-threatening matter, so I'll need to lay low for a while. Please keep praying. I got this. We got this. Craziness. <laughs> yep. Your parents were living here at this time? No. So you no. Were, who were you with? I was living with my boyfriend at the time, actually. Um, and my mom my mom was like living with us and um so she was around, but it was it was the craziest thing. Like we all knew my leg was just I mean, it was rotting for lack of I mean, it's that's just what it was doing. Um and so, like, my mom would go with me to the ER, we'd get turned away, we'd get turned away. And my boyfriend at the time had gone back to Florida to drive with my little sister out because um, it was, you know, coming up on the holidays and stuff. And when he was in Florida with her, um, they're like, you need to get your family here because we don't know if you're going to pull through this one. And so my dad's flying in from, you know, being on the pipeline. They're rushing, like, driving across the country, you know, through the night to be able to get back. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, it was bad. So you eventually recover from this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
eventually, how long does it take to fight off these triple bacteria infections and whatnot? Um, so I ended up getting out of the hospital. It would have been very late January, early February. So I was there for at least another month, five, six weeks. And at the, at, during that, that five, six weeks, is that when you started doing rehab to like get fitted for a prosthetic? Did that happen that fast? Um, so they actually started fitting me when my staples came out. So yeah, so it would have been probably the week before I got out of the hospital. And then I hit the ground running with that. Which like, is no big surprise at this point. I was point like, I time. want my leg and I want to get the frick out of here. <laughs> so, And then and then what, what happens then? So, so now what was that rehab process like? You're trying to learn to walk again and all this stuff. Yeah. Well, so you're supposed to go to physical therapy and go to gait training and, you know, sit, like, sit, sit through like six weeks worth of like training on this leg, <laughs> learning how to walk. Um, they let me go with, after two weeks. Uh, so I took my leg home after two weeks and it was just like – I mean, this is this is it. Um, and I mean, I actually have these videos of my mom watching me for walk for the first time, and of course, it was very emotional and and whatnot. But it was like it didn't skip a beat. And you gave me two weeks, and I was I was gonna figure it out. And then where'd you go when you got released from the hospital? You just, did you stay in San Diego? Yeah, I stayed in San Diego for quite some time, um, and then I ended up going up to Temecula for a little while, um, and then bouncing back and forth, got back on my snowboard, and so I was spending the winters in Colorado and. <laughs> back here in California. What is it like snowboarding now? Oh, it is weird. <laughs> um, no, it's, I don't know. It's, I mean, I don't know any, like, I can't remember what it's like anymore to, mm. like, snowboard with two legs or a busted up leg. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, it's, again, like, I just got back on my board and just rode. Um, I mean, of course, I wiped out and it hurt quite a bit. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I've got some, you know, I, again, just didn't skip a beat. And at this point, like, okay, so that Cosmopolitan uh, video was made around this time, right? Yeah. So there's, uh, you, you're starting to get some kind of notoriety. Is that the right word? Wait, is notoriety bad? No, I no. don't know. I, no. I don't know. You <laughs> seem like the type of person that wouldn't want to be called famous, but you're starting no. to get some no. some recognition, right? People are starting there to start hear what you, you've gone through and start to be interested in the story. Right, so this yeah. is all happening too at this time. Yeah, which is which is weird. It is weird, very very weird. You know, I'm not like when I think of with any of the things that I've done now at this point, it's like you don't want to be celebrated, you don't want the attention for doing what you want to do and living your life how you want to live it. Like I wasn't doing anything miraculous. I'm just like I want to live. You know, I want to move forward with my life. I want to be here for my family. And then even now, it's I just like helping people, so I keep helping people. <laughs> I mean, so yeah. So you get the cosmopolitan thing. You're you go and you you go and do a job as a stunt woman in a movie. What's that all about? Um, just uh, filling voids, you know, um, adrenaline seeking. I guess trying to fill that. What did you do as drag. a stunt woman? Um, so everything from car crashes to explosions to pyro. Did anyone notify you that this may <laughs> jar your head? <laughs> there was a couple times. Um, but yeah, no, it was just one You're of those You're like, things. I'll crank up the speech therapy and just do <laughs> yeah. more stunts. That's it, yeah. All makes sense. Heck. Hey, did you, uh, what, you were in a movie with Mark Wahlberg? Is that right? Yeah, that's the biggest one. So Patriot's Day. And what do you do in that movie? Get blown up. <laughs> you're like, I got experience at this. Yeah, Check yeah. this out. Yeah, get blown up, get carried around on stretchers, lo- lose a limb, fall out of a wheelchair once at one point. A bunch of different scenes, but yeah. Um, okay, so so you got that going on. You got the the People Magazine Body Image Hero. 
Which is what? What does that mean? Well, when I was in this whole process, I mean, even from the get-go with the face, like the interest in my face, um, you know, I didn't, and the doctor's telling me all the stuff about my leg, I didn't really care if I was going to be able to get up and run again or any of that. Like, as a young woman, you know, all I cared about was who's looking at me differently? Can I wear heels? Can I wear a dress? Is anybody going to find me attractive enough to have a family one day? Like, really worried about the self-esteem stuff. Um, and so, like, moving forward, I just decided that I was going to own my differences, that I was going to, like, be proud of the scars that I wore because they told my stories. They, like, I mean, in my in my opinion, they made me look pretty tough, too. But, um, but no, like, I wanted to show people that it was okay to embrace. You get street cred. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's, like, I just wanted to show people that it was okay. You know, like, you don't have to be the cookie cutter, you know, definition of what beautiful is. Um and I don't want to say the cheesy, like, you know, beauty comes from within. But I, like, I wanted to show people that it was, I mean, it was beautiful to be strong. It was, you know, it was beautiful to have drive and have will and, and to to not fail. I mean, to give it your all. And so that, that's that's what the, the People magazine thing. So what, they interview you and take a bunch of pictures of you yeah, and I, all that. And now, again, I'm just, I'm just kind of have to trace the fact that People are starting to follow you and and recognize that you're a um, that you have a, a very interesting story and inspiring story yeah. as these things are happening. Because the reason I kind of have to say that is because then you like do other things at the same time, like getting stunt women and getting crashed and blown up and stuff like that. And at some point, you got your master's degree in business administration, yep. right? And this is still just to prove to people that you can still mentally go. Yes, and yes, but on the other on the other side of that too, like even right now when I when I do eventually finish this doctorate, like I'm terrified of what I'm going to do with that time. I'm like, oh my god, I, I love structure. Oh, <laughs> like, so you, you mumbled <laughs> filling the void the other like like a couple minutes ago. You like I'm mm. filling the void. Mm. So yep. what you're saying is you have to be busy. You you have yep. to have something to focus on, something to do. Exactly. Okay, that starts to explain some things. Yes, mm. <laughs> because at some point you decided that you were going to put another thing on your list of things to get done and it's climb the seven summits. Right. So uh, the highest peak on each of the seven continents. Um, uh, it was one of the things that hasn't been done by an, a female above the knee amputee. I can't speak for the men. Um, but yeah, I decided that I, I needed something. You know, I lost the 2016 snowboarding season due to the last um, revision surgery to my amputated side. And so I was like, well, I can't do any high impact sports. So what else can I do in the mountains? <laughs> and found mountain. You might want to check with me on your ideas because <laughs> I think mountaineering is not a high impact sport. <laughs> okay. We might have to set up a little coaching situation here. Because I'm not sure. So so check it out. So the idea you get the idea. You must have just said, okay, what can I do that's super, super hard? Yeah. Um, you start with Kilimanjaro, is that the first one? Yep. And how'd that go? Uh, it was it was amazing. Actually, it was insane because we were up and down in four and a half days, which Kilimanjaro stands 19,341 feet. So for me to make my way up and make my way back down that quickly was, was out of control. Um, but it was one of those things where it was, I mean, it, in a sick way, like, just like I was addicted to school, I started getting addicted to that suffering because, like, you suffer and you're miserable for days on end, but then once you make it to your goal, it's that much sweeter. And so, I mean, it was just, I don't know, like a, a weird hunger for more that I wasn't really, like, finding anywhere else. And then 
I mean, it, I, we ended up raising like $150,000 for clean water for the East Tanzanians with that climb. Damn. So now it's like I have the personal side of things, and then I have this other purpose that I was already, you know, felt like I was missing by not having in the Marine Corps. Um, and then from there, that's when everything took so off. So which one came next? Karstens. Um, and Karstens, I was looking at that one. This is in Indonesia. How tall is it? Uh, just over 16,000 feet. And it looked to me like the getting there was half the battle. Yeah. So honestly, I mean, Kersens is an interesting mountain because it's notorious for being the most hostile um, and technical um, and ver- well, really versatile. But I mean, it's a 72 mile trek into the base of this rock face. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, it's just, I mean, it's honestly low impact right there. <laughs> yeah, That's a low impact scenario. <laughs> 72 miles. Yeah. Um, but I mean, even just getting out there and I mean, the people that you encounter, the Donnie and the Moni tribes, like, I mean, I mean, that was just an experience in itself. I mean, the local, like, indigenous tribes came through and, like, ransacked and destroyed all of our camps and stole our passports while we're, like, up at 15,000 feet watching them. Didn't they teach that- you in the Marine Corps to set security <laughs> on some stuff? <laughs> you got to so leave, leave, leave a little couple people so back to bad. set security on that stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's a 72-mile hike in. Yep. Now, some of my friends that are amputees, it's not like your your prosthetic just is this clean, easy fit, and it's all good to go. That thing cr- that thing gets all kinds of issues. Oh, yeah. I was thinking about it. I sweat a lot. If I was wearing the prosthetic that you have, they would they would have to put drain holes on the bottom yep. of it. Do they have drain holes? Nope, but they See, need them. <laughs> I would need drain holes because I would fill that thing up with sweat. We'll go back. I'll send you a link later to my Everest like mini documentary. And I'm in a tank top when everybody else is in like these big puffy summit suits. I run so hot now that I'm missing my leg, mm-hmm. and so I feel your pain on that. So you're you're doing these long. You do that, and you make it to the to the top of Karstens, right? Yep. Um, you launch at some point. I guess you wanted to put your business administrative degree to work, <laughs> so you launched a t-shirt company yep. called Headcase. Mm-hmm. What inspired that? Um, well, so I'm a, I'm an avid hunter. I believe in the things that I consume. They need to be, they need to die at my hands. Um, I don't like eating things that are bred to die. So was really involved in the outdoor industry as far as mountain hunting and the likes of that nature. And I, if you walked into my house now, like it is full of taxidermy, specifically skulls. Um, and so there you have it. So a lot of it was, um, joining forces with my buddy Nevada who carves skulls for a living now um, and using his artwork and and skulls, you know, the head case in the outdoors. When you, at what point did you, did you grow up as a hunter? No, I mean, we did little stuff, you know, whitetail and, and hogs and stuff like that growing up, but none of the stuff that I'm doing now. And when did that start um, in I, this whole freaking crazy I know. <laughs> scenario you've got unfolding? You know, I, so... We were talking about like loss and gain earlier. And I, again, my biggest perspective, like biggest gain has been my perspective on life. And so I started to appreciate, started to appreciate just the cycle. Um, and so that's when I really started to look into, okay, well, what's going on in the outdoors? What am I actually putting into my body? A, and then also just, um, you know, conservation efforts and, um, and then, yeah, being able to provide for my family, like in the most natural way possible. And yeah, I mean, Hunting is not about death; it's about living. What? what you, when did you go on your first hunt? Oh man, growing up? No, no, like your um, your more recent hunting career. Um, probably 2013. Okay, so you got yeah. right right into it. 2014, somewhere in there, yeah. And by the way, if anyone doesn't know, hunting is not easy, and you, I mean, it involves 
it involves that's why when you're talking about a 72 um, mile hike in I mean hump uh, hunting takes a lot of look I, I just went on a hunt and I think we were averaging like I think we averaged like 10 10 or 12 oh, miles yeah. a day it was like 8 to 12 miles a day you know that you're putting out up and down hills and it's it's hard work and I'm doing I'm out there doing it with two legs by the way <laughs> so okay so you start your t-shirt thing and then you go for your first little kind of uh, little, what would you call it, a little recon, a little recon of Everest base camp. Yes. That was just, let's get a look at this thing. Let's see what's up. Yeah, I mean. So How inspiring was that? Were you like, oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly like that, actually. <laughs> right, I can imagine there that would be, if you have that in your mind and you get there and you're at the bottom, you're like, Let's do this. Yes, and I was losing it. I mean, I mean, obviously, just very emotional altogether. But you know, there's several like, there's hooting and hollering and several f bombs and tears and you know everything. Um, but no, I mean, the moment like three days into the actual like base camp trek, I saw Everest for the first time, and I just knew I was like, that's it. I'm gonna do it. And the, so, so that was just getting getting a feel for it. Yeah, getting to know people. Getting to kind of see how the system would run. Who'd you go? Like, what? Brought, how'd you get on that trip? Um, so actually, because you're not like walking down to the <laughs> the travel. What are those people called? Travel agent. Travel <laughs> agent going. Yeah, book me to base camp. Yeah. One way. So actually, this chick by the name of Haley Webb that I met on my thousand mile walk. Um, she's she was the local mountain guide over there, and she hit me up out of nowhere and was just like, "Hey, I'm gonna you know guide a, a base camp trek." Um, to Everest, do you want to come? And I'm like, well, actually, yes, because I need to decide if I'm going to climb from the north side or the south side, um, you know, down the road. And so, yeah, I mean, I went down there and absolutely fell in love with Nepal and the people and just their way of life and their culture. Okay, so you get done with that. At some point, you open a hair salon? Yes, <laughs> here in Oceanside, or a little ways up in Oceanside. Oh, okay. <laughs> right on. Is that still there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's doing really well. Um, well, so so a little backstory to all of these random little things that I'm doing. Yeah, because you are doing some random stuff yes, at this point. I know. Well, I mean, look, I can barely brush my own hair. <laughs> um, no, so when I woke up in the hospital in 2015, I looked around the room and told myself that whoever was in that hospital room with me, that they would never work for anybody else ever again. That, like, if they were willing to sacrifice their time, you know, their personal lives for me to make sure that I was okay, that, nope, you know, I was going to help them live out their dreams. Um, they helped keep me alive. So uh, my best friend, Christine is actually my business partner in that. Um, so she's the head honcho down there. I'm just the CFO slash investor. So if we're, if we're in O-side. That's it. And we need a haircut, <laughs> yeah. where do we go? Chapter one, hair and body lab. Chapter one, <laughs> hair and body lab. Do you give high and tights there? No, they won't do it. Dang it. <laughs> what about all the Marines? You, see, earlier you said like, was it 3-5? You said, I hope 3-5 is listening to this. 2-5. You, you said, I hope 2-5. In, in my mind, 2-5 is listening to this. Once, there are so many Marines <laughs> listening to this right now that if you don't get a pair of clippers <laughs> no. at, at, at the place up in Oceanside, you know, let's, let's, let's make it happen. <laughs> okay, so you get that going on. And then February, you start. You go back to climbing. So November was you went to Everest Base Camp Trek. You do the hair salon thing. February, you go to. Ecuador, Cotopaxi. You go to Ecuador for Cotopaxi. And this is a summit attempt. Right. But you didn't make it. Nope. We uh, turned around at like 18,500. And what's, what is it? How much further did you have to go? Oh, another 1,500. 
vertical. What was it? Uh, just altitude and moving slow. Uh, my climbing partner had a headache. Um, we were about to hit this like really long traverse section and like with my prosthetic, if the high side is on my left side or my prosthetic side, I cannot move well. So with her being lightheaded, having a headache and me already being a little unsteady on the feet, it just was, didn't make sense. You had um, to make a smart call. Yep. And you kind of talked about that in some of your blogs, just about like making a good decision, which the mountains are littered with bodies of people that get summit fever and they're gonna go for it and yep. they don't make it. Exactly. And that's one of those things where it's like if someone's climbing with me and something happened, like I wouldn't be able to live with myself. Um, so yeah, I mean the mountain's not going anywhere. And mm -hmm. if that one does, there's gonna be another one, so. <laughs> <laughs> so you get done with that one, some lessons learned, and then you go to, then you go to try Denali. Denali is a mean, mean mountain. Um, yeah, so um, go out to Denali and spend literally a month, the whole entire month of June 2018 on Denali. And we made it up to 14,000 feet. We're pinned for 17 days. No going up, no going down. We were scalping food and fuel from people as they were, like, making their way down. We were trying to be stubborn and ride out this terrible, terrible, I mean, what would really be a cycle? 17 days? 17 days. And like you would sleep for 90 minutes and you get out of your tent for 90 minutes and dig your tent out. <laughs> and then go back to sleep. And that's all you can do. Um, for 17 days. 17 days. Do you, do, do your, does your body attrite so bad in 17 days? Like I think about like, I work out all the time, but occasionally, okay, so here's an example. We just had an event called the Muster in Denver, Denver Colorado. If I would have known you, you would have been there. It would have been, would have been awesome. <laughs> so like during that week, it's kind of hard to do my normal workout routine. It's a little bit lighter than normal. And then from that, I came home for one day. I got one workout and then I went hunting in Utah. And I didn't work out there other than humping up and down. But I can imagine if all you're doing is sitting in a tent and then getting out every 90 minutes and digging out. And then if you think at the end of that, you're going to have to go and walk <laughs> up that freaking mountain. Yeah, that seems like a... Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, your body it just atrophies anyways. But of course, being at altitude, like you're just you're just withering away as it is, and up there, limited food, limited supplies. Like you're not gonna sit there and just be shoveling all sorts of stuff yeah. on your face. So, <sighs> I mean, it was hard. And then out there in Denali, like you can't just go for a hike or any of that. Like there are so many crevasses that everything that you have to do, you have to have your technical gear, be on a rope. So, I mean, you were literally confined to your tent and to a very, very small, like little living space. What was the avalanche threat? Um, well, luckily we were far enough okay. um, from any slabs that, I mean, we're really just kind of hanging out there. At that point, you're just worried about being buried alive because you slept too long. Okay, <laughs> knowing, I don't know you well, but at least sitting through this podcast and realizing that you need to be doing something at all times, what what the hell was your mindset after day 12? Oh, I was terrible. <laughs> I honestly, any climb, like the, the hardest part for me is tent time. Like I cannot sit still. And so, yeah, I mean, we built an Do you bring anything with you? Point. Do you bring a book? Do you, whatever? No. Yes and no. So on Denali, it's illegal to have any Sherpas or any help um, because it's part of the National Park Service. So, I mean, you have to drag a 50-pound sled and carry a 50-pound pack. So and that's just any a books. No. <laughs> I hear that. No. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we built an igloo at one point. but no. Okay, so then you get eventually you get weathered off that climb. Yeah, well, so we had a very short weather window. We ended up making it up to, again, 18,200, 300. Same climbing partner that I was actually on Cotopaxi with. Um, I was moving a little bit slow up the section called the Autobahn. Um, 
and you know the weather was rolling in quick she wasn't feeling too hot just you know just wasn't gonna happen then so i made the call to, to turn around and come down so you so now the next thing that you're looking at is the opportunity to do everest again that that's where you were at so you come to come down from denali and now it's now it's everest go time Yes and no. So I did Elbrus, the highest point in Europe, over in Russia. Okay. So I did Denali in June 2018, or attempted it in June 2018. Elbrus, the highest point in Europe um, in September 2018. And then I went down to South America and Argentina, January 2019. Crushed that one. So then I decided I was ready for Everest. Okay. (laughs) Now you decide you're ready for Everest is there still, is that because you've been hiking in the mountains so much, you've been doing so much that you're feeling like your conditioning is good? Or is it like, is it like when you fight in MMA or you run a triathlon where when you get done, you go, okay, I had to recover a little bit? Uh, yeah, I mean, it is. But like for me, especially, I mean, for any mountaineer, it's like building blocks. Like each of these mountains, A, humbles you, but then teaches you something different. So whether, uh, you know, you know, Kilimanjaro, for example, was my first real exposure to endurance, so to speak, you know, especially at altitude. Karstens was super technical, so that's a totally different skill set. Denali, winter camping, glacier travel. Elbrus, patience for myself and people. Um, Aconcagua, <laughs> it's the highest mountain outside of the kind Himalayas. Kind of brushed over that one pretty quick, didn't <laughs> yeah. you? What, Elbrus? No, patience for people. People, oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was, yeah. Um, working on it still. Um, and then, yeah, Aconcagua is known as the Mountain of Death. It's the highest mountain outside of the Himalayas and down in Argentina. And um, that one really taught me just how my body's going to react to, to that kind of altitude, to big mountains. And how did it react? Totally fine. It's weird. So I run super hot um, all because of losing the leg. Um, and then I don't Right now, knock on wood, I don't really suffer from any, like, altitude side effects. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't have the headaches. I don't have a hard time breathing. Um, so once I confirmed that, I was like, all right, let's go. I'm the, only, the only issue that really ever kind of comes up is my residual limb swells inside of the carbon fiber socket. So that can be kind of risky. And that can be risky because you won't be able to get it off. <laughs> Got well, cut off circulation. <laughs> okay, so you cut off circulation. Yeah. And then you, then you have a real problem. Yes. Okay, <laughs> did you have to do any more prep? So so are you when you when, when you're now looking at Everest, you're doing you're feeling like you're in pretty good shape for it physically? Yep. And then it's okay, let's get all my gear together, which now you know pretty well cuz you've done these other climbs you're feeling like your gear list is pretty straightforward yeah so let's talk a little bit about everest so you get to you get there you get to base camp yep. what's what's that like well, how whole, freaking pumped are you at this point i was jazzed i mean well and it was crazy too just because i mean obviously you know i've been out there already so i mean I'm, all of these memories are coming back up. And, I mean, you were just in total awe walking out in the Himalayas. Like, you do not matter. <laughs> Nothing about you matters out there. So, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a whirlwind when you're first cruising in um, to Everest Base Camp and, and just into the Kumbu region of Nepal. Um, but, like, making it into base camp, it was interesting because there were so many people, like, waiting for me there. Like, so many people, either they saw me on the base camp track, they've been watching my story or whatever. Like, they were just so stoked to have me there. Um, And that just meant so much to me because it was like, you know what? I knew this was big. In my mind, this is big, but not as big as, like, what everybody else thinks it is, I guess. Um, Like, it made me realize that I was impacting a lot more people. Um, 
And then, of course, there was like the naysayer and from, you know, from time to time that would tell me, oh, you're not going to make it above camp two as an above the knee amputee. And of course, that just fuels my fire. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, base camp's a special place just because it's like this huge, obviously tense city. But there are people from all over the world with the same common goal of getting to the highest point in the world. Um, so how, I mean, long, how long, how many days were you at base camp for? Um, geez. So it would have been two or three weeks. So two it's, weeks. it's like two or three weeks at base camp. And then did you do those little excursions where you go up for a little bit and come back down yeah, to well, kind of acclimate? Yeah. Well, so, um, so there's the Kumbu ice fall, which is realistically probably the most dangerous part of Everest, at least as far as climbing goes. Um, and it's just con- because the ground's constantly shifting, obviously, with the, I mean, the name tells you all, like, ice falls, there's avalanches, it's just crazy. Um, and so we would go up there and we'd, like, test my prosthetics and the ladders, we'd, um, you know, obviously go across, you know, move along the fixed lines, we went up to camp one, and we, you know, came all the way back down. Um, and after doing that, um, I actually made the um, decision that I wasn't going to come below camp one. Um, again, <laughs> um, so climbed high and slept low a couple of times. And then finally my team left me at camp one and everybody else went back down. And I stayed at, I stayed at camp one for above 20,000 feet for almost four weeks. And your decision to do that was just to get better acclimated or to avoid the Kumbu ice fall or you just, cause <laughs> I can't move fast through that stuff. Got um, it. And then not only, yeah, I just, I knew that going up and down through that, like that's just another variable and more risk. I know for a fact that I can withstand 20,000 feet. Um, so it was really just kind of, you know, weighing the pros and cons of both. Um, and in my opinion, like, again, if something happened to me when I'm sitting in the middle of this valley at 20,000 feet, then it's just me. I mean, I was out there by myself in a tent and there's no one. Um, but if I was in the Kumbu and there's my team and then another 20 people who are also like doing the same thing and, and something happens and I don't know, that's just a huge cross to bear. So I'd rather be solo and something happen than go back through the Kumbu. How many people are on your team? So we had two locals um, my buddies, Rob and Chris, and then a couple of, or excuse me, two Americans, Rob and Chris, and then two locals. That's the team right there. Team. Who are Rob and Chris? So Chris is actually um, a dude that's climbed with me a few times. He actually did Albris and Aconcagua with me. And then Rob, man, he's a stud. Um, he he was um, my cinematographer for Denali. Okay. And then I decided that he's just, I mean, he's a mountain goat. So I was like, you know what? I want you to be a part of my team, obviously, because you can handle things when it hits the fan. But also, like, you're going to film this for me. <laughs> so, At what point? So, so you get to camp two. You spend... F- Four weeks or no? It's a camp one you spent four weeks at. I just spent um, four weeks above twenty thousand feet. Okay, got it. So, and and then at what point is the decision point? Like, okay, it's our our go time. So um, it would have been. We get word like I mean it's all a weather game out there. So we get word that there's a, a really nice weather window. I mean it's long. There's not a cloud in the sky. The wind's perfect. And then we get word that about two hundred fifty of the three hundred and thirty climbers are going to be trying for that same weather window. And um, I just went back and I thought about things. And my biggest fear on when I'm climbing isn't dying. And, you know, my biggest fear is getting frostbite and losing more of my, you know, already very short limb. Um, so I sat there and I reflected and said, you know what, I can't get stuck in that line. 
A, because like what happens if my climbing partners run out of oxygen? There are no options. There's no going up or down. Like I run the risk of losing one, you know, somebody that I care deeply about. Obviously, there's the risk of frostbite. Uh, I run warm. I have an elevated heart rate because of my injuries. So I'm using more oxygen. Like there was just too much. There's there was too much to like deal with other people. Not only that, but what happens if I get stuck behind somebody too? Um, in my world. Like, if you're on my team and we're climbing together, like, you go at my pace. And some days I haul ass. Some days I'm moving a little bit slower because of my leg. Um, so um, me and the team decided that we were going to do what's called threading the needle and go for a much shorter weather window. And um, we didn't even know if the ropes were going to be fixed at the top. Like, so this is prior to this big window? You guys said, well, there's a shorter window that's going to last however many days and we're going to go for it then? Yep. We decided that we're going to go... We were we were one of the first teams to to push. So, and then and then, so you go up from camp two to camp three, and then you stay at camp three. How long do you stay there for? Just a night. And then camp three to camp four, another yep. night. Yep. And then you sleep for like three hours at camp four, and then you push to the summit. So it goes camp four, camp five. You just there's no camp. There's five. no camp five. Mm-mm. Camp six, no camp six. So you went from <laughs> straight from camp four. To, <laughs> yeah. And you guys made it to Hillary Step. Yeah, so so we made it, this is so sad, we made it to 200 meters away from the summit. Okay, I should be really freaking proud, actually. Like, I should say that a little more enthusiastically. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I mean, we made it to the South Summit. Um, so I'm obviously super proud of that. But, yeah, it was a little disheartening to see it. Throw a rock at it. <laughs> and that's... um. Yeah, I mean, when you look at those pictures, when you see, and Hillary's step has changed, I think, in 2015. Oh, it, it changed from, like, this big kind of, well, like a 10-meter, like, 12-meter something rock, and now it's, like, a little bit, it looks like it, something happened to it. Yeah, the like earthquake, earthquake or something. Mm-hmm. And so, but that's where you guys made it to. And once again, you faced with this tough decision to make of, like, do we press and go and it's a huge risk. I had a friend that tried to cu- climb Everest and he was a total stud. And he was like, I mean, a total stud. And he was like, yeah, you know, every step is a freaking nightmare. Like it is so hard. It's, it's like you can't describe how hard it is. Yep. Because people think, hey, you were 200 meters. Come on. Yeah, yeah, Come yeah right? On. Yeah. No, I mean, when it was bizarre, too. Um, so actually, like, at the moment when we were going to turn around, or we did turn around, um, I was above everybody by, I don't know, 20 yards, maybe. Um, and so the local Sherpa actually made his way up to me at the anchor and said, they're out of oxygen. You and I can keep going up to the summit. Um you know, or we can turn around. And so I'm like, I'm looking at them. Our entire like summit push was rough. I mean, it was, ins- it was just total insanity. And I just remember looking at them and both of them having this look of just exhaustion and just fear. I'm like, no, I'm not doing this. Like, mm-hmm. I, there's that doesn't mean that much to me. You know, would I, they have sat there and waited for you to come back because they don't have a Sherpa, or they just turn around and go? They would just turn around and go, but that's even. I mean, that's even more dangerous too. Yeah, because then what? Now you have no oxygen. Now you have you don't even know how the hell to get forces, down. Split forces. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> yeah, this is a bad situation. 
And so, and not only that, but like, why would I only go up with one Sherpa that I don't really even know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it's like, I was just, it was, and it was so strange too. And like, I think about this all the time because if you would have seen my reaction to turning around on Denali, I was pissed. Like I practically shoved this camera back in Rob's face. I'm like angry that, you know, that it's all falling apart. And then that's after 17 days of sitting there. You were that bad. <laughs> yeah, I'm starved. Um, but then, I mean, this time, like I just looked down at Rob and was like, no, like I'm, I was at total peace with the situation. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I would have loved to summit, but it just, and I also wouldn't have felt right. Like, I mean, I've been through so much with those two dudes for two months at this point on Everest. Like, yeah. Later. Yeah. See ya. <laughs> I'm going to go summit now. Oh, yeah. And I mean, <laughs> like I just could I couldn't do it. Um, but yeah. Then, and coming down is not, it's not like once you turn around, okay, now we're good. Oh no. no once you turn her down, it's a, still a nightmare. That's where everyone dies is on the way down. Because they, they, like you said earlier, they get summit fever and they exhaust everything that they have to get up to the top. And they just lay down and go to sleep on the on the way down. They're done. Um, and it was, I mean, for, especially for me, like with the prosthetic, like going up, I have a technique. I mean, it is tons of right leg lunges and tricep dips. And I mean, it's, it's intense. But on the way down, there's no technique. It's just forward momentum. Like the best thing that I can do for myself is know how to fall down. Um, so, yeah, I mean. Because you fall a lot when you're coming down? I mean, I better know how to fall. <laughs> the stunt woman training pays off when you're coming down. <laughs> At least I better not to catch myself. Do but. you do you change legs for coming down? No, I don't. And is that because it's impractical? Is that because it doesn't make any difference? It doesn't make any difference. No. Yeah. I mean, so the actually the only thing out there right now for people like me are the <laughs> for us to be able to climb the way that I'm climbing is the feet that I make. I make them myself. So. There's not many options <laughs> to change them anyways. Okay. And you get down, you're at peace with the decision. Mm-hmm. How long did the weather hold for? Oh, quite some time, actually, for days. Okay. Um, I mean, which was, of course, I mean, that's sad for me because um, I'm sitting here watching these people go up. But, I mean, your bodies are so trashed after being at, you know, 26, 27, 28,000 feet for so long. Like, And if you're out of oxygen, you're out of oxygen. Like, at that point... You're pretty much tapped. Um, and so, I mean, even after we made it back down to base camp, I mean, coming down like through camp three and two, like I'm, I was so at peace with everything because I'm watching these zoos of people come up. Yeah. I, think I mean, hundreds of people. And in that moment I was like, you know what? You did the right thing. You're not one of the ants. You're not one of the minions. Like you were safe. You were smart. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like when I got back down to base camp, it definitely was like, yeah. do you have any to do another t- attempt? Like what's up? But I mean, just the weather wasn't going to hold out anyway. So, yeah, the, the images coming back from the Everest this year of the lines of people has been crazy to see. Yeah, literally the entire like ridge to the summit is one way traffic jam. Yeah, and to me, that's not what mountaineering is. You know, like in my opinion, like that totally discredits what it, what all it should be. Um, you know it. I'm I'm glad that I was out there with me and my thoughts and literally two other people. <laughs> okay, four counting the Sherpa, but yeah, you write you you covered all this in really good detail on your on your blog, which is which is cool. Uh, you get done, you come back, you acclimate. At what point did you go back and and go to Cotopaxi again? Uh, last month. So you just did that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. And this time. Oh, successful. Successful. Yeah, you it. got up there and now you're here. Where, what did you come to San Diego for? 
Because we've been trying to do this podcast for a while. <laughs> I know. And um, finally, and I was, I, I looked at your uh, social media because I, I didn't know why you were coming out here. Yeah. And then I put two and two together with your social media. I realized <laughs> why you're coming out here. Yeah. I'm <laughs> so actually, what are you here for? Um, I'm actually only in San Diego very briefly. I am headed down to Mexico to race the Nora 500. Explain <laughs> what the Nora 500 is. Um, it is a um, pretty extreme off-road race. Um, and we're actually, uh, me and a sweet friend of mine are actually racing um, a rebuilt um, flyer vehicle, a military vehicle. It's like um, a light strike vehicle. Right on. It's pretty sweet. 500 <laughs> miles. What kind yes. of support do you get on that? Um, very, none. <laughs> so it's we what? Ha- we have a pit crew, which is really one dude in a fuel truck that can kind of chase us down. But okay. if you break down, I mean, you're going to be stuck there for hours. So. <laughs> so you better hope your machine's running good. Yes, correct. And that's the next damn adventure yes. on your list is yes. that. <laughs> yeah. How long does it take to get that done? Uh, only two days. I mean, you race them I and it's a consistent thing. So you'll, you'll race two days. I'll be back in San Diego on Sunday, back in Colorado Sunday night uh, to hustle and work my tail off. And uh, yeah. What are you working your tail off when you get back? Everything from speaking gigs to the real estate team that I do with my mom. I'm opening a CrossFit gym up here in Vista. Um, dabbling with a bunch. But I'm going to work my work until Thanksgiving, then I'm going to take some time off. Heck. So those are the things that you've got on, on, on the schedule right now. Opening a gym, real estate, ski season is going to start. Yes, and I can't wait. So you'll be up there. Where do you usually snowboard at? Um, all over, like the Roaring Fork Valley. So Aspen, Snowmass. Yep. And you live up in that area as I well, do. right? Yes. Very lucky. Check. Uh, I mean, so we're kind of up to date right now. I wanted to, I wanted to cover one more little chunk of writing before we actually close it out because you got some really cool writing. Thank you. So here we go. I had joined the Marine Corps to serve people. Then at a mere 23 years old, I was looking to repurpose myself. Now at 27 years old, I'm still serving people just in a different capacity. Nothing about my injuries has been easy. But what I'm thankful for, regardless of the pain and grief, are the people and experiences that have come my way. Four years ago, I was petrified of what my life may become. Now I couldn't be more proud. I fought for it. I worked for it, harder than you can ever dream of. But I didn't get here alone. Family, friends, believers, everyone who was there from the start, thank you. Appreciate all of your days. Even when you're riding in the rain. In the beginning of my recovery, I struggled a lot. And it made me a bitter and sometimes mean person. How disabled do I have to make myself feel before I give up? How much easier would this be had I done it on two legs? My heart hurt in a way that then I couldn't even tell when I was hurting the people around me, family included. Not that it's an excuse, but know that if I caused you any pain, I'm sorry. I am not perfect, nor will I claim to be. Realistically, none of us ever will be. It's all about the progress over perfection and taking steps in the right direction. The last couple of years, I've been working on me as a whole. I've been focusing on the person I want to be and recognizing a lot about the person I was. I've tried to surround myself with people who wish the best for others and build them up, not break them down. 
I've stepped away from the toxic people that had a negative hold on me. If someone has wronged you, forgive them. Unshackle yourself from that pain. I started living my life for others, not for myself, and life is so much sweeter that way. The truth is, I'm doing more now than I ever did on two legs. I've been surrounded by people who keep me inspired and keep me looking onward and upward. Now, I can't stop. I have suffered loss, that's no secret. But look at all I've gained. How the low points, had the low points in my life not happened, I would not have had the amazing friendships or experiences I do. I'm thankful for the highs and the lows. Life has a funny way of putting us exactly where we are meant to be. Well, Kirsty, I think that it seems that you have been put exactly where you are supposed to be on this path, living this amazing life and inspiring so many other people. Where can people find you? Yeah, I mean, everyone can follow along on, of course, social media, Facebook and Instagram, just my name, Kirsty Ennis. Um, but if you're, if you're interested in any of these blogs or the writing, um, they're all up on my foundation's website, so KirstyEnnisFoundation.org. Are you sure it's not KirstyEnnisFoundation.com? It's both. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> just checking. So either one of those. Awesome. Awesome. So you are, you know, really cool stuff that you post on that, the, the detailed description of your climbing are, are really, really cool. Is that documentary posted that you were talking about? Not yet. Okay, so we'll be waiting for that. Yes. Let me know so I can repost it. <laughs> um, no, awesome, just awesome to talk to you. I know that we we try and stay on the path around here, you know, the path, the righteous path. Yes, sir. Echo Charles, speaking <laughs> of the right, righteous path. Yeah. Kirsty, leading from the front. What can we do ourselves to kind of move down the path? Uh, you know, sure. broadly oh, yeah. speaking. Plenty, plenty stuff. Um, but first, there it is. But I warned you about first. this. <laughs> well, you know, like throughout the story, um, you know, there's little pockets of maybe like, oh wait, well, you know, small details. So you said the pilot was D O R. What does D O R mean? Drop on request. Oh damn. Meaning I don't want to do this anymore. Damn. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That's crazy. Um, also, I I thought you know that you mentioned like how you'd have. Um, like challenges with your memory, like just going to the bathroom, like, hey, why am I here? Kind of thing. Yep. You ever watched the movie Memento? Oh my goodness, no, but you were the second person to tell me that in two days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you should definitely watch that movie. It's very cool. Huh. Yeah, it's so cool. it's the guy, you know what it's about then? It's about this guy, Leonard. <laughs> he doesn't like to be called Lanny. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. Anyway, he has short term memory loss, right? So he can't make new memories. He has long term, and so he can do like habitual stuff, you know, stuff that I guess it uses a different part of your brain. So, like habitual stuff, driving a car, like that kind of stuff, he can do. And he has his long term memory, like he knows about his wife and his, who he is and stuff. But he can't, he basically he goes to the bathroom, like, why am I here? You know? Yeah. So, he has all these tattoos, kind of <laughs> like you, except his are like notes, you know, like, note hey, to self. Yeah, but wow. they're everywhere, you know? And then he takes these Polaroids of the people. So it's like, oh, yeah, I know you, you know. Yeah. 
it's really good and it goes uh, backwards the movie goes backwards so you don't it's like you follow along with him you know yeah. so it's like oh how did he get there and you don't know you know he'll just wake up in the room with an empty bottle and I'll be like I don't feel drunk <laughs> <laughs> and he's like naked you know like that kind of, and you're like oh how did that happen you know it's good. Yeah, I mean, that's what it reminded me of the whole bathroom thing but as far as the path goes we're doing jujitsu. Yeah, that's you ever usually where it all starts. Huh? Do you ever train in a jujitsu? I have. That oh, doesn't sweet. surprise me because isn't it interesting? You snowboard. I don't. I don't know how to snowboard, mm-hmm. and these may or may not apply to you because you're you're different. I think, but I don't know how to snowboard. I probably couldn't climb. I can barely climb my driveway. We were talking about <laughs> Everest and all, all these things. I don't have a hair salon. <laughs> Don't say. Yeah, <laughs> for many reasons. Uh, and I have two legs, you know. And I, it, I don't know. It seems like, you know, like when you say, okay, it, it depends on how you react to like all these things. It's like your reaction is like you chose to go for like these huge reactions. It's not like this weird impossible thing, you know. It's like if you have everything kind of in front of you, you're less likely to to, to have that big reaction, you know. No, you mean if everything, sure. if something was easy for you to achieve, you'd have less of a yeah. probability of trying to make it happen. Yeah, and then at the and then kind of as a certain, and it kind of, I guess with you, like you were kind of always like that, right? Yeah. Oh, like yeah. you're like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna make things happen in this maybe extraordinary way. <laughs> you, know? Yeah. you know, good or bad or you know mischievous or whatever. Like you can you kind of started with that, so I guess <laughs> in the big picture kind of makes sense, you yeah. know? But then from the outside, you kind of look in. But yeah, like, you know how you say, it, or we've talked about this before, where if you're handed everything, yeah, you know, like you won't go strive Case in for point, it. what are the chances that you would be attempting to summit Everest if you got out of the Marine Corps after six years? And you know what I mean? Like, yep. it's just, you, you have these challenges and because it's like, because they're hard and even harder than normal, that you want to do them even more. Yes, no, Is exactly. It, that's kind of what you're saying. Yeah. Well, cool. well, I think too. Like I'm, um, I'm like an, an obnoxiously competitive person, but not necessarily with other people. It's just I look at what I did yesterday and I say, okay, well, what can I do a little bit more? Whether yeah, that's yeah. something physical or mental or whatever. But then also, like, honestly, I mean, I'm not the fastest person out there. I struggle my way up. I'm not perfect out in the mountains or anything that I'm doing. But I really do. I hope that. There's somebody out there watching me, and they say, to hell with Kirstie, I can do it better than her. And yeah. then I hope that they try. Yeah. I mean, that's what it's about, you know? Like, I want yeah. somebody to see it. Do it. Kind of goes to show. Also, you talk better than me, too, by the way. So <laughs> there's that. <laughs> yeah. Multiple brain damage, speech yeah. therapy. Nothing happened to my jaw. Yeah. And then you yeah. talk way better than me. So <laughs> like I said, it goes to show. Anyway, jujitsu. Oh, you've done jujitsu, too. So there you go, too. So are you currently doing jujitsu? No, I was training for a little bit. In it, and then I, I really fell in love with MMA and then just boxing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like We're good with all of the above, actually. We just like. Like that you scrap. Good. Yes. Well, Fighting in general is good. Well, I mean, I think when I started training, as when I realized, like, I'm an angry little person, <laughs> and it's good to get it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like I've to got hit a mean things. elbow. I'm just saying, sharp yeah. elbows. There That's you good. go. That's <laughs> good. Well, these are all elements of the path included on the path. So, as far as jujitsu goes, if you do gi, you need a gi. If you do gi, yeah. Which you should. Go hand in hand. I think you should. Uh, you can do one or the other, I guess, but ideally, gi, no gi. Both. 
Well, <laughs> see, what he's trying to get to is we have a company. We make jujitsu geese. We okay. make rash guards. We make t-shirts. Sure. And we make them all in America, which is awesome. From the dirt to the shirt. From the dirt to the shirt. From the cotton to the... From the seed to the gi. <laughs> <laughs> all made in Maine. And uh, we are, we're actually good. making jeans, too. Yeah. We're making, jeans. Yeah, American we're making jeans. denim. They're dope, American too. American denim. Yeah. yeah. Jocko doesn't like fashion or fashion. Don't think you're right. The both. <laughs> I don't like fashion yeah, yeah. or fashion. Or I was going to say aesthetic. Uh, like, that's why you don't know about Cosmopolitan. So uh, Cosmopolitan, it's like the... If you think magazines, <laughs> what do you think? People... Time, Cosmopolitan, Jiu-Jitsu magazine, and Jiu-Jitsu magazine. Yes, Re- yes. But Cosmo- does anyone read magazines anymore? No, that's why they're out there it's making online. videos. Cosmopolitan.com. Right? They're out there making videos. Yeah, because they know no one's reading a magazine. It's for well, it's real on the website. You know what? I will tell you. I used to be a sucker for. I'm talking maybe even even up to eight years ago. If I was in the airport. I'd like walk through this shop and see like a magazine, a magazine. right? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know if it was a gun magazine. I don't know if it was a car magazine. I don't know if it was a outdoor magazine. But like one of those <laughs> magazines, sure. I'd say, oh, you know, I got a flight. Hey, I'll read this magazine. Yeah, yeah. Eight years ago, I may have bought. I, I, I would. I would. There was a seventy percent chance that I'd see a magazine. It looked kind of cool, yeah. and I'd get the magazine. Oh, yeah. Right now, there is a zero percent chance that I'm getting <laughs> a paper magazine. Yeah, zero percent. Yeah, chance. that's. I mean, I guess one. What do you call it? Those people who like they learn, they yearn for the past. What is that? What is that kind of person? A person that yearns for the past. Anyway, there's know. a there's a word for that kind of person. <laughs> anyway, so maybe that part of me maybe still likes get you to that the speech physical. therapy so you can think of these words a little quicker. <laughs> is what I'm saying. See my word uh, recollection. See, I can't. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Anyway, the people who are nostalgic like that, they okay. like the physical magazine. I was one oh, of those people. Yeah, but yeah. here's the thing, which I mean, I'm, you probably realize this. You have your phone, so like, yeah, you yeah can that's what I'm saying. Go yeah, cosmopolitan.com. You can read, you know, all the stuff that you read or whatever. With that is what I'm saying. You don't need the physical magazine anymore. And then you got to lug around a physical magazine. You're done with that's it. That's what you're I'm doing. saying. Like, well, that's yeah. why I'm saying no one's reading a magazine <laughs> yeah. anymore. Even me. And I used to buy them. Yeah, 60% that's why, chance. That's why, though. 70. But that's still, that, but that doesn't explain. Do you, do you get magazines? No. I take the back. Cookbooks. But that's not a magazine, magazines. though. Oh, it's a it magazine. is a magazine. There's a cook. We call a, we call a cookbook magazine a a cook, we call magazine? A cook, cook magazine? Oh, yeah. Like Recipe a magazine. magazine. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no, no, no. It's about you like to cooking. Cook? Yeah. You like to cook? I do, yes. Oh, your love eyes lit to, up right I there. I love to cook. Do you love to eat? Yes. Both? Yes. I love to eat. I do, <laughs> and I do, it's not that I don't love to cook or even really like to do it. I just maybe not that great at it. You make like a I, good I can, salad. I can, good, good. I can make a good salad. Yep. Yeah. Funny. I can make a good steak. So anyways, Origin USA. Origin Main.com if you want any of this stuff. We also have supplements. You've been drinking some Jocko, Jocko white tea over there. Yeah, I'm a What's fan. your verdict? No, I'm a fan. I think it's great. You got a big smile on your face. Yeah. More than you had earlier. I think it I think it not only does it give you an eight thousand pound deadlift, it will make you smile. <laughs> yep. there you go. Well, in a way it kinda is misleading because when you look at the can, there's no like hibiscus or pomegranate, like fruity label Image. imagery okay. yes yeah well, we're it's not like gonna black. put it looks pretty intense it's tactical yeah. it looks yeah. kind of tactical you see what i'm saying <laughs> but then when you drink it certified organic going in very light very refreshing you see what i'm saying so it's like a thing so like when you drink it you're you're pleasantly surprised i think on a subconscious level yeah so we got a bunch of different things and one thing i do have to say is we got um 
so I, I make this little drink. It's called Discipline. And there's a powder form, and we just came out with a, a powder form that's called Jocko. Do you like Do you like Arnold Palmer's? I do. Okay, so I I like I love them. <laughs> <laughs> and so I made that right there. It's called Jocko Palmer. That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. Well, and we're gonna see how long we get away for, with it for. But um, yeah. So, anyways, that's awesome. It tastes so good. It tastes like the best Arnold Palmer that you get from you know the restaurant Arnold Palmer's. When they do a good mm. job, oh, good job! Okay. And you go, oh, you say, I want Arnold Palmer, and they they just they just do a good job, and you're like, yes, this is kind of what it's like. So, anyways, that's available, and a bunch of other supplements, Mulk, Joint Warfare, Krill, Krill super oil, Krill super Krill oil. oil. Yeah, that's for Warrior your Kid Mulk. By the way, Warrior Kid Mulk for when your kids need something good to eat, and instead of giving them. Level nine Cheetos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, don't get them that. So yeah, you can get that. Yep. All in origin, origin Maine. Maine. Dot dot com. com. It should be and dot org apparently because you know yeah. actually that's smart when you do the yeah. dot org and the dot com. So and you know when you go on GoDaddy and they tell you, hey, you want to buy the dot org, the <laughs> yeah. dot net, the dot uh, dot TV, dot whatever, yeah. dot biz, you know all this stuff or whatever. You say yes if you have a good name. You say yes to all of those. Yeah. That's a good strategy. Yes. See, way ahead of the game. I like it. She's <laughs> over there just getting out. And then the last, originmain.com. That's the go to. That's where you can get this good yep. stuff. Yep. Also, we have a store. It's called Jocko Store. Mm. See, <laughs> you're probably going to kind of figure out Put real this all quick. Together. Yeah. You know, it's, and so Jocko Palmer is not a genius name. It's kind a name. Of, a little a, bit. It's a name as a result of lack of genius. Oh, okay. You're like Arnold Palmer. There's genius Joko and simplicity, Palmer. bro. There's genius and simplicity. <laughs> okay. All right. Give me some credit. All right. All Actually, that is true. Nonetheless, so if Jock wants an online store, what's I'm he going to so, call it? Bottom line is, I'm so unoriginal that I just. With, starting with this podcast, I just said, oh, we'll just call it Jocko Podcast. And now, now it's like sort of just everything. So yeah. Hey, we I'm need sorry. an online store. What should we call really it? really dumb oh. doing that, too. No, no, no. Because now you look back. If. If like four years ago, someone would have said, okay, you're gonna name all your stuff Jocko. I would have been like, no, that's that's dumb. Yeah. But it didn't happen like that. It happened like a little bit yeah, at a time. Yeah, crept up. <laughs> you know, yeah. next thing you know, you got Jocko Publishing. What? <laughs> How did that even happen? Well, the thing is, uh, big picture, long game, it does make sense. No, no, it's I actually so. smart. I think you, the genius in simplicity, I think this applies here. So, so nonetheless, JockoStore.com. This is where you can get your shirts and rash guards tanked to all these stuff while you're representing on the path. Discipline equals freedom. There's, I haven't really talked about this too much, but a guy, okay, so we got a t-shirt that says discipline equals freedom in it. I don't want to say it's <laughs> iconic, but there's only <laughs> one place in the world that you can get this t-shirt. Yep. This dude just got arrested in somewhere oh, no. and his mugshot <laughs> is him. He's wearing a Discipline Equals Freedom t-shirt and he's sporting this thing. <laughs> and what he did was apparently there was some kind of altercation and he beat up two, two people years, yeah. and then dropped them off somewhere. Like at their house. Yeah. Because what I think they were like rugby <laughs> players or something like that. Here's the thing. So when he used, when I saw that article, you sent me that article, it wasn't as much, it was his court appear, appearance. Yeah, so he, he, wears he, the he proactively went to court. It wasn't like he got rolled up and then they just <laughs> yeah. No, he's in court. This is what he decided to wear to court. Oh, he's yeah. representing on the path. On the path. We're curious because because a lot of people are like, oh, he's not on the path. Obviously, he's yeah. getting arrested and rolled up. Yeah. You were kind of like, no, 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 no. Like, read, read a little bit more. I said, hey, we all represent the path in our own way. 
And this guy's no different. So basically, as far as the article goes, what I got from it was, okay, him and his other friends who he probably found annoying at the time, they were drinking. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Some argument ensued in the car. He beat them both up real bad. Okay, that's, I don't know if it was in the car before they got in the car. That's where it gets a little bit of, like, if they're your friends, you can't beat them up real bad. Wait, 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 wait <laughs> what does real bad even consist of? Well, they said, they, well, okay, and then the, the guys who got beat up, they were saying, oh, I'm like life-threatening injuries. Or maybe their lawyer or somebody was uh, saying, oh, my gosh, I'm critical. And then the, the medical professionals, they were like, whatever they got they got beat up they, they caught a beat down yeah. from the discipline equals freedom guy that's okay. what happened <laughs> okay for acting annoying and drunk that's what happened then he dropped them off at their house okay at this point i will not issue an approved or disapproved Correct. i'm remaining neutral Agreed. at this time until further Agreed. evidence comes forth and i can make a decision whether these actions were approved or disapproved or, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> agree agree but like it's hey we all represent uh, the path in our own way that's it unless <laughs> He got that shirt, whether this means anything or not to us, even though it does, he got it from jockostore.com. Yep. That's where you can get And it's not just it's this kind of crazy, isn't it? There's other ones. Is it this is beat because uh, a little while ago in UFC, there was a guy wearing the shirt and like a bunch of people were all there. <laughs> yeah. So now we're sort of, this is headline news. Yeah, your mainstream. Well, my brother texts me. He's like, hey, you're, you're mainstream now. You know, you're in. Listen to this. <laughs> Speaking of tangents. So m- my uncle's were both used car salesmen. And there was a crime that happened in the town where one of my uncles was a used car salesman. And at the crime scene, it was close to his used car lot. And in the picture that they took of the crime scene, in the background, you could see the sign for his, you know, Vicks used cars. You could see in the background, in the sign, on the front page. And my uncle, because my uncles are hilarious, they cut it out. They sent it to my mom. And he, he, my uncle cut out the picture, sent it to my mom, and said, I told you I would make it big time. And here I am on the front page. <laughs> so there you go. So we kind of, you know. Oh, yeah. Same thing. It's, hey. it's not nothing. We made the news. It, oh, it is not nothing. Yes. Yeah, we made the news. Uh, we're in criminal justice. Criminal you know, justice. Man, we're everywhere. There you go. It's yeah. just, it's just all happening. All right, real quick. Uh, subscribe to the podcast if you don't subscribe to this podcast. Echo doesn't think you subscribe to it at this point. It's Prove Echo wrong by subscribing to it. Don't forget about the Warrior Kid podcast. That's for your, it's for your children. And if you're a parent, it's very, very useful. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell your kids that. You want to keep your kids thinking that this is like a little bit unrelated to your thought process. Because that way they don't do the little rebel thing like some people (laughs) sitting at this table right now. (laughs) (laughs) Which is actually all of us. (laughs) Yeah, so check that out. Don't forget about the Warrior Kids Soap. IrishOaksRanch.com. Young Aiden making soap from goat milk. All natural. So that everyone in the world can stay clean. Clean. <laughs> we also have a YouTube channel. If you want to see. Speaking what of staying clean, like. hold on. Uh, can I say something? Of course. Um, <laughs> before we were we were waiting for you downstairs, mm-hmm. and at the front desk girl at the gym. So the studio is at the gym. For those of you who don't know this, got a victory a gym called Victory MMA in San Diego, California. The studio is in the gym. We were downstairs. We were waiting for Kirsty to show up. And the front desk girl goes, hey, Jocko, I got a phone call. Someone wants to know where to train jujitsu in this city, in some city. 
And I'm not going to say it in case of whatever, you know. Sure. Privacy act sure, or whatever. Privacy, yeah. So he says, she, he says, the front desk girl says, what should I tell him? And I said, well, here, give me the phone. And I like pulled up and I go, hey, man, what's going on? And he's like, Jocko. And I was like, hey, bro, what's happening? I hear you're looking to train jujitsu in your city. And I pulled out Google Maps. I was like, hey, there's a cool place here. There's a bunch of good places. Yeah, you're good to go. And he's like, he's like, hey, man. He goes, I was on crystal meth for seven years. Jesus. He goes, I started listening to your podcast. I'm clean. My family's back in order. My job is back in order. Please keep doing what you're doing. I'm starting to train jujitsu. And I was like, bro. So you, I'll keep doing what I'm doing. You stay on the path and stay clean. So right on to you out there. You know who you are. Um, now, I'm not saying if you call Victory MMA and Fitness that I'm going to answer because I'm not. That's probably the first <laughs> time I've talked on the phone here in a year. Yeah. So Also, that's not to be com- confused with you using Trooper Soap or Jocko Soap going to rehabilitate your drug situation It will not help your crystal methamphetamine habit. It might, but that's not the claim. Yeah, 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 that's the thing. You can't claim it, but there's little triggers that you could have that could make you want to stay clean. Yes, sir. Maybe maybe that soap, goat soap is one of them. (laughs) (laughs) You could be super stoked on that. Uh, Psychological Warfare, you can get that from iTunes, Google Play. If if you need that little uh, couple words to maybe get you on the path. And don't forget that we have a YouTube channel. Yeah. If you want to so see now, what now you Kirst, can say what if you want, I was gonna say, or I was saying, if you want to see what Kirsty looks like. Hey, before <laughs> before you check and see what Kirsty looks like now, first you should go and see where's that picture posted of you with your freaking face. It's on Instagram and Facebook. Ripped Dang. open. Yep. Could fit my fist to the lower right side of my face. You can see teeth. Is that teeth you can see in there? You can see like white stuff. Yeah, it's two little teeth. Like my jaw was shattered and just unhinged, so it's just kind of like hanging there. God, is it the kind of picture on Instagram, the kind where it's like um, blurred out with the eyeball with the with the cross over it, where you got to click Probably. on? Probably. You know that. I one? would guess it is. I don't think so. I don't think they got. I bet me if yet. you. I bet if you repost it. I'll if you, you repost it, you'll be like they'll 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 what's that called? Blur it out. Set, like. A sensor for approval, something. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. All right. Let's um, do it. Well, yeah, then now you can see what she currently looks like. In black and white, <laughs> by the way, but yeah, I'm yeah. just saying, you know. In black and white. It's available on the YouTube channel. When people meet me, they go, oh, you're in color. That's yeah, one thing they say. And you know what else they say to me? You're shorter than I thought you would be. Oh, I get that all the time, too. I'm 5'11", <laughs> and, and they're like, oh, I yeah, you're not as tall. Well, I shouldn't say everyone says that to me, but like I would say, ten percent of people. So you get uh, that. Five percent of people say, time. say you're a lot shorter than I thought you were gonna be, and I say, oh, cool. They say that about you too. Oh, all the time. That's that's interesting because you know what people tell me you're way bigger and way <laughs> this than I thought. You know, <laughs> but that's obvious. Yeah, you know, that's for obvious reasons. Uh, Flipsidecanvas.com. Dakota Meyer. Dakota was just on Joe Rogan, by the way. Mm-hmm. Pretty Definitely. pretty awesome to hear that and. We have a little company of his called FlipsideCanvas.com selling artwork. If you want to do something, like some saying of yours, if you want to put it out there to the world, we'll talk to Dakota. We'll make it happen. And by the way, I told Dakota, you know who Dakota is, right? Oh, yeah. I told Dakota that uh, I was talking to you today, and he told me to tell you. Oh, he said, tell her she's a, he said, man, he said, tell her she's a badass. (laughs) (laughs) I said, I'll let her know, man. I'll let her know. So Dakota Meyer, badass of all badasses, says you are a badass. So 
Check out flipsidecanvas.com if you want to get that out. I've written a, wrote a bunch of books. The latest book coming out January 2020 is called Leadership Strategy and Tactics Field Manual. It is available for pre-order at this time if you want to get the first edition. If you don't care and you just want to roll up to me in a year with the third edition and, and have me belittle you and make fun of you for not showing any commitment to the cause, cool, do that. Wait, if you want to get in the game big time and you want to have the, the trump card of books, Sir, leadership strategy and tactics field manual. So you get that way the warrior kid one, two, and three available now. Teaching young kids what, what not just young kids should know, but what everyone should know. So get those books, Mikey and the Dragons for the little kids, the littler kids. A lot of people think it's the best children's book ever written. That's the feedback that I'm getting. I quite see a bit. Yeah, that could be for sure. So you may want to judge for yourself, Mikey and the Dragons. I tend to agree with them. Yep. For the little kids. Uh, Discipline equals freedom field manual. We got extreme ownership. We got dichotomy of leadership. All those books about how to lead and win in your life and leading the team that you work with. We got Echelon Front, which is my leadership consultancy. We solve problems through leadership. Go to echelonfront.com for details. EF Online, get the same training Interactive online, efonline.com. We got the muster coming up in Sydney, Australia. By the way, have you ever been to Australia? I have. Did you Did you love Australia? <laughs> I loved it. Where were you in Australia? Uh, Brisbane. I went to Brizzy too. <laughs> I I was. It was so awesome. I loved it. It was so awesome, and so we're doing a big event down there, and. Um, Definitely looking forward to it. It's in Sydney. It's December 4th and 5th. Here's the thing. Some people think, oh, it's not going to sell out. If you're thinking that, you're not correct. You're not correct because every event that we've done has sold out. Some people have said, well, are you going to go to Brisbane? Are you going to go to Perth? The answer is no. We are not a rock band on tour. <laughs> we're not hitting every city in Australia. We're not, we're not even hitting every city in America. We're doing, we do one or two. This is probably, we probably won't go back to Australia for five years. That's one of my guesses right now. We probably won't go back to Australia for five years because we'll do Europe, then we'll do Asia. So well, I guess, you see what I'm saying? So if, you, if, you're, if you're in Australia or you're in New Zealand or you're somewhere in that area of the world and you wanna come to a muster, come to the one that is taking place December 4th and 5th. We also have EF Overwatch for veterans that are looking to be placed into companies that need leadership, go to efoverwatch.com. And on top of all that, if you just feel like you haven't gotten enough right now, you, you haven't gotten enough of me, if you haven't gotten enough of Echo, you haven't gotten enough of Kirsty yet, cool, this conversation will continue on the social media interwebs, <laughs> on Twitter, on Instagram, and on that fishy um, Kirsty is first of all Kirsty Ennis Foundation dot org and dot com. <laughs> Nailed it. Kirsty Instagram Kirsty underscore Ennis, Twitter Kirsty Ennis, and it's K I R S T I E, and then Ennis E N N I S, and then Facebook at Kirsty Ennis, and Echo is at Echo Charles, and I am at 
Jocko Willink. Echo, do you have anything else? No, sir. No, ma'am. Good to see you. Good to meet you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Kirsty, any closing thoughts from you? Yeah, I mean, I just want people to realize that me climbing all of these big, you know, ridiculous mountains all over the world, it's it's more than it just being about me. Um, you know, I'm doing it for the people that need hope, you know, somebody that needs inspiration or even just the non-believers really waiting for me to prove them wrong. Um, and even more so, like, I'm doing this with heart and passion and purpose. And, you know, even, for example, like, when I was out in Everest, I, me and my organization helped um, – established the first ever wheelchair program over in Nepal for 25 amputee orphans. You know, when we were just down in Ecuador, we actually had seven amputees standing on top of Cotopaxi. So, you know, this really is, it's, it's just about paying it forward and, and helping, you know, get the adaptive community into the outdoors and, and hopefully encouraging, you know, other people, regardless of whatever your adversity that you're facing, you know, to go outside and, you know, and find what really sets your heart on fire. It's been a legit honor to, to sit down with you, to meet with you, and I definitely, absolutely thank you for coming on the show. I know it's a, I know it's a scary time commitment, <laughs> especially when I tell you it's, it might be, you know, we've done podcasts that are four or five hours long, but so it's awesome, and, and it's awesome for me to have the opportunity to share your story. It's an honor to be able to do that, so thank you for coming on. More important than that, Thank you for your service and your sacrifice in the Marine Corps. On top of that, thank you for your continued service today with what you're doing with your foundation. And on top of that, but what you do every day to show the rest of us the path and set an example for for everybody. So thank you for all that. And the rest of the service members out there worldwide currently serving or who have served thank you for your service and your sacrifice and thanks for keeping us free and here at home to our police law enforcement firefighters paramedics emts dispatchers correctional officers border patrol secret service all the first responders that there are thank you for keeping us safe on the home front and to everyone else out there We all suffer losses. We all are going to have highs and lows in our lives. We can all be petrified of what the future may hold, and we can all have setbacks and doubts and pain. That's what's going to happen in life. But if you can look at someone like Kirsty and you can follow her lead and you fight for it and you work for it and you work through it, those losses and those setbacks and that pain will make you better. So as Kirsty said, appreciate the days every day and get on the path and stay on the path by getting out there and getting after it. And until next time, this is Kirsty Ennis and Echo and Jocko. Out. <laughs>